It's uh, September 15th, 2022, <clears throat> and we're ready for yet another exciting meeting of the Montgomery County Planning Board. Starting with some preliminary matters, could I get a motion on adoption of the resolutions, please? I'll move approval for um, adoption of the four resolutions uh, listed in the uh, agenda. And I'll second. All in favor? Aye. 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 That's unanimous. How about uh, the minutes from September 8th? I'll move approval. Second. <clears throat> All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed. Those are approved. Uh, I don't think we have any record plots, unless I'm mistaken, uh, or regulatory extension requests for a change. So that brings us to Gwen Wright for the Planning Director's Report and uh, Photo Contest winners. Uh, thank you. Uh, for the record, Gwen Wright, Planning Director. Um, before we get into the photo contest, I wanted to give a quick update on um, our projects and a little information about uh, what I think was a really successful summer internship program. So. Um, first, I do want to tell you that uh, we continue to be working very, very hard on a number of master plans, the Farallon Briggs Cheney plan, and we're gearing up for a great placemaking event for that in October. Uh, we also are working hard on the pedestrian master plan and actually had uh, just this week an in-person uh, outreach and engagement meeting uh, here in this building and talked to um, quite a few people with interesting ideas about the pedestrian plan. We're hoping to get the Rustic Roads plan to you uh, very soon and you're going to be getting a briefing on the Tacoma Park minor master plan update uh, today. So um, <clears throat> our work on master plans is uh, continuing. Um, I do want to uh, note that uh, we have some good news, which is that we have um, we have an upcoming National Capital Area Chapter conference for that's for the American Planning Association NCACAPA, and that's coming up <coughs> at the end of this month. Uh, I believe we've had one uh, session that uh, our staff is going to be presenting at that conference. And um, we've won two awards. Um, the first award, I'm going to be very immodest and announce my own award, which is that I um, have received a Leadership in Planning Award that was originally created in honor uh, and memory of Fritz Gutheim, who was uh, one of our very early early planners and father of the Ag Reserve. And so that leadership in the Gutheim Leadership in Planning Award um, is going to me this year. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, and then the second award, which I'm actually also very excited about, is the um, Someone's going to have to remind me of the name of the person it's in honor of, but it is the um, National Capital Area Chapter APA Award for Engagement and Outreach, and that is for our work on Thrive Montgomery. 
And so we're very, very excited to be receiving that. And I want to recognize um, Bridget Breuer, Chris Pfeiffer, all of the folks who worked so hard on our communications plan and who um, helped implement, all the staff who helped imp implement that um, outreach and engagement. Um, so we have a lot of uh, great events coming up. You all know that Makeover Montgomery is happening, uh, and we're very excited to have the incoming president of the National American Planning Association on, um, it's, it's hard to believe, it's next Thursday. It's only a week away. Um, Thursday the uh, 22nd at the University of Maryland. We're doing this conference with the National Center for Smart Growth. And so everyone is very welcome to that presentation. You do not have to register for the whole conference to attend that. And then on Friday the 23rd and Saturday the 24th for half a day, the Makeover Montgomery Conference will be happening here in this building. Uh, and then again, a week later, we have the um, National Capital Area Planning Association annual conference, and that is going to be on the 30th, and it will be in the District of Columbia. Um, so lots and lots of great events coming up, lots of things to uh, celebrate, but let's get to some of the actual um, reports that we have PowerPoints for. So. If um, one of the team could pull and up. Jerry, Sushi. Yes. Can I just, uh, one question. Uh, congratulations to you, Gwen, and the staff on the two awards. But I did receive a printout of a semi-annual uh, outline that Casey Anderson is going to introduce. Is there a date set for that? Um, or where yes. Is that to be? Well, you know, the semi-annual is a report that we do to the council uh, twice a year. And uh, usually in the spring and in the fall. And I believe the current date that is planned, I have to look and see. I believe it's the October 18th. Yeah. So October 18th is the date that's currently scheduled for the county council to hear our semi-annual. Uh, Commissioner Sushi? Right, yeah, there, there's a presentation on it today. Uh, it's item six on the okay. agenda. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that clarification. Thank mm -hmm. you. And again, a congratulations on both the awards. Yeah. We're, we're very excited. Well done, Thank both you. Both you and staff. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, great. I wanted to um, start off my PowerPoint by just noting the uh, wonderful, wonderful summer internship program that we have this year. I mean, one of the things that um, is great about our organization is that we do really uh, look for and have been able to hire incredibly talented uh, staff. And uh, when we brought these summer interns in, and if we could go to the next slide, you can see the interns who were specifically for the planning department. Those were all the summer interns for parks and planning in the first image, but this is our, our image for the planning department. You know, we've been very fortunate to have a number of interns who have ended up becoming uh, full-time 
permanent staff and some of them in leadership positions. Many people don't know that, uh, you know, Jason Sartori was a summer intern many, many years ago. Uh, Carrie Sanders was an intern many, many, many years ago. Um, and uh, we have had great success in finding uh, and becoming um, acquainted with some really talented, talented people through our internship program. Uh, this year, if we could go to the next image, our summer interns worked on a variety of projects in the planning department. They worked on Reforest Montgomery, on uh, HR recruitment and, and training, particularly. We really got a lot of help in our training efforts on the Farallon Briggs Cheney Master Plan, on design excellence uh, efforts, on the Great Seneca Plan. They helped us with a lot of GIS work, and they helped us with our Hispanic Heritage Month programming. Um, so if we could go to the next image. One of the things that we really are proud of is that our summer interns not only help us, but we try to introduce them to a lot of different planning ideas and to um, really, really positive things that are happening in the county. So this is an image from a tour of the United Therapeutics Building that was organized for uh, all summer interns, talking about not only um, the, the great building and the economic development, but particularly the environmental sustainability of this net zero building. And so they really were able to see a great example of um, you know how to integrate a lot of different ideas into um, uh, planning, how to integrate, again, economic development, great architecture, and sustainability all in you know one effort. And uh, I do want to recognize, you know, it, it takes time and effort to organize all of these events and field trips and activities. I want to recognize in our department Robin Brittingham and Modrion Miller, who are our human resources team, and they really worked hard to pull all of this together for our summer internship program. I know there also are very dedicated staff on the parks side, including I know Darlene Douglas has been very, very active for a number of years with our um, our internship effort. So next slide. Just to finish up, I wanted you to actually see the names of the people who uh, were involved. We had everyone from um, a James H. Blake High School student to undergraduates at places like Davidson, George Washington, um, and uh, graduate students in uh, planning at places for, like University of Maryland, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, and even uh, University of uh, Toronto. So very exciting, uh, and Bowie State. Don't want to forget Bowie State. Graduate student Laura Heath, Lauren Heath <coughs> from Bowie State. Um, so uh, we're going to do this, I hope, every year. It's a really, really great way to, um, you know, to build our organization and to talk about all the 
uh, <clears throat> great things we're doing and to spread the word because uh, these young people go back to their schools, they go back to their classes, and they're able to talk about what Montgomery County is doing. And so that's really helpful. So next, um, I, unless there are any questions, I do want to pivot to the awards. I, I just real quickly, um, I, I noticed, which I, I think is great, the variety of, of um, schools, both. I saw that there was one from high school, but also universities that um, that we bring in. So I, I guess the question is, are we out, out there recruiting, or is it simply because they know what a great agency we are and everybody wants to work for us? Well, I think it's a combination. Uh, one of the things, again, I'm, and I want to give kudos to my two deputies, Tanya Stern and Robert Cronenberg, because they have made it an effort to go out and actually do presentations at graduate schools in planning and to try to um, make sure that we are recruiting both interns and employees from graduate programs around the area. I know that um, Tanya has been to her alma mater, which is the University of Pennsylvania planning program. I know Robert has been to um, Morgan State and some uh, you know, more local programs to try to spread the word and uh, find it, uh, help people find our great agency. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm really very, very proud of is the fact that even during the, um, what is they called it, the great resignation, uh, you know, during the period when a lot of planning agencies are struggling to fill their vacancies, you know, our vacancies, we've, we've had them. People have left for, you know, personal reasons, for better professional opportunities in other locations. People, we always have some level of turnover, but, you know, we've been averaging maybe 12 vacancies. We have about a 10% vacancy rate, which is actually not bad. And so I think even though the great resignation is real, it is something that uh, is happening, we haven't <clears throat> had a lot of people uh, leaving us, and we haven't had as much trouble recruiting great new folks as at least what I've heard from some of my colleagues who have, have really had some struggles. Yeah, it's as a as a former Orioles fan, it was always great that they used their farm team. So that's what this reminds me of. When they stopped using their farm team is when I switched to the Nats. But that's okay. Great. Um, well, are, are you sure the Nats are on the farm team? <laughs> this year, yeah. <laughs> Should be somebody's farm team. Um, so um, we do have some awards to give out next, and I, I do want to pivot to that if we can pull up that PowerPoint. Um, again, I just want to recap for folks. We have been doing um, this awards program for probably five or six years, and uh, the photo contest uh, program with staff. And when um, we really conceived of the whole design excellence initiative, we recognized that our 
Existing staff are incredibly talented. Not only do they have great photographic skills, but they have a great eye for what's um, important and what helps demonstrate a lot of our design goals in the county. And we wanted to build a collection, a library, of great images so that we could use those in presentations, in publications, and um, we have, uh, over the years, gotten an amazing collection. This year is uh, no exception. Uh, the theme was Best Community Landmark. And, you know, a lot of what we've talked about in all of our work is community building, place making, giving a sense of place, and those community landmarks are the things that help to do that. So I'm going to just run through the images that were, if we go to the next slide. Uh, we had uh, 139 photos submitted, and we came up with uh, 30 finalists and five winners. But I will tell you, coming up with the five winners was very challenging because all the photos were so good. What we did want to do was show you the finalist photos, all 30 of them, and then we'll announce the five winners. And we do have certificates for each of the winners. So hopefully they're here. We'll see. <laughs> and uh, we can uh, take a quick picture of each of the winners. So let's go to the next slide, please. We're going to just move through the finalists, and there again are 30 images. Um, remember the theme was Best Community Landmark, and what we want really to uh, show is not only the interesting subjects that folks decided to photograph, but the quality of the photography as well. Next, please. And as you can see, community landmarks ranged from buildings to nature. And that's really, uh, again, I think an important message. Next. Next. You may notice that, like, the image on the left is uh, not in Montgomery County. <laughs> it's New York City. Um, but it's still... Uh, that is the 9-11 uh, the, uh, memorial area and uh, the transit station in that area. It's an amazing, amazing building. Next. Next. We loved all of the images with people, uh, you know, because honestly community landmarks uh, do attract people, which is... What, uh, what makes them really successful. Next. We love the natural features and the man-made features. Next. Again, the quality of photography in a number of these, the play of light and shadow on the left. I mean, this is really, really professional level photography. Next. Next. 
And next. I think we have one more. Oh, maybe even more than one more. Let's keep moving through. Okay. So now we have five winners, and I'm going to go ahead and call their names and ask Paul Mortensen, who is the person who is the heart and soul of this contest. I want to give kudos to Paul for running this contest every year. He does an amazing job. Um, and um, let's go ahead and announce the winners and have each of them come up and get their award. Uh, First winner is Brian Kent. We really love this image at National Harbor because it included public art. It included, uh, you know, a man-made element, the Ferris wheel that I think has really become a landmark. But uh, you know, we really particularly loved the public art focus as a community landmark. When we're done, I think we're going to have everyone come up and take one, one group picture, too. Maybe in the board, who members who are here may want to join in on that. Um, next, Chris Van Alstine. And I guess Chris is not here today, but his supervisor, Patrick Butler, is going to accept on his behalf. And uh, we loved this image because of the movement and the, um, you know, the sort of excitement of the water and the people clearly, you know, making use of this fountain and, and it had a joyousness to it that we were really attracted to. Uh, next, Marilyn Stone. And Marilyn is with the Parks Department, but she is a regular contributor to this um, photo contest. And this, we thought, was an amazing idea of how nature can become a landmark. And it's a really, really, again, the, the shape of the photograph, the fact that it's so um, horizontal and the benches and gathering space under the tree. Uh, it's really uh, very evocative. Uh, next, Atara Margulies. And uh, we love this image because we absolutely agree that this building has become a community landmark. Uh, but we really, really loved the, uh, the photography here too and how she composed this image. And then the final is Brian Kent again. <laughs> Brian is a member of our communications team and he is a great photographer. Uh, we really, really, again, loved the comp composition, the um, um, strength of this image. You know, this is an amazing uh, landmark in DC. 
but I think we were very impressed with how Brian um, composed this image to include not only the Martin Luther King Memorial, but the Washington Monument, which you see to the right, and that it was a, uh, a just an incredibly strong image of a very strong community landmark. So with that, if everyone who is interested in being in a photograph, maybe we could come down to the front. We will take a quick photo and then give a final round of applause to everyone who participated. So um, with that, uh, again, thank you to everyone uh, who participated. And that is the end of my planning director's report for today. OK, very good. Unless there are other questions or comments um, or heartfelt congratulations, uh, we can move to item five, the operating budget overview. Is that a different team's call? Yeah. So.
All right, we are ready to talk about the semi-annual presentation, which Jerry mentioned earlier, uh, with Gwen and Mike. I thought we were no, operating budget. Oh, I'm sorry, operating budget first. Beg your pardon. With John Kroll. John Kroll is not ready Good to talk morning. about the semi-annual. He's going to talk about the budget. <laughs> Obviously, right, John? Yeah. That much is true, yes. Uh, good morning, all. Um, let me share my screen, if I might. And good morning again. This is the uh, next step in the uh, budget process for fiscal year 24. Is a, uh, a quick overview of... Uh, uh, what we look like going into 24, and a uh, another quick look at our six-year outlook. Uh, today, we'll uh, look at these uh, items here, some key trends, um, budget out outlook for property tax revenue, and some of the internal cost pressures on the expenditure side. And certainly, if you have if you have any questions in the course of this, uh, no need to wait to the end. Just please jump right in. Uh, this slide shows the assessable base trends for real property from fiscal year 16 to 23. Uh, that's grown by about 22.5% during those years. It's projected to be to grow by 2.44% in fiscal year 24, and these are based on the March county finance estimates. Council, county Council sets the tax rates each year. The rate for each fund cannot be lower than the minimum per the land use article, and that is shown up by the dashed line on the graph. For fiscal year 23, the administration fund rate was increased by 16 hundredths of a cent to 1.9 cents, and the park fund rate was increased by 56 hundredths of a cent to 6.12 cents. Preliminary projections require the tax rates to increase in both the administration fund and the park fund for fiscal year 24. Expenditure trend graph is shown here. Uh, you'll note in fiscal year 21, it was essentially flat, and that was due to the pandemic-related effects, uh, related, uh, result, which resulted in a same service level budget. Modest growth resumed in fiscal year 22 and continued in fiscal year 23. Largest portion of the budget is, being, is personnel. The outlook continues to be most heavily impacted by these costs, wage increases, health insurance, retirement, and OPEB. As of March 22, the Montgomery County Finance Estimates Hespel Grace base again will grow by 2.4%. These estimates in the revenue projected on this graph are based on the following change in tax rates, 13 hundredths of a cent uh, increase in admin and 53 hundredths of a cent increase in the park fund. And that's because we're required to show a balanced budget when we pro uh, propose our budget. Um, budget outlook, uh, the internal cost pressures, again, employee compensation is the number one one, uh, health insurance, OPEB, retirement, less so this year, and the operating budget impact for new facilities and debt service for capital construction. Changes in health insurance and other benefit rates 
are preliminarily estimated to result in an increase of 9.8% in fiscal year 24. And you see in each of these graphs, the dollar impact on each of the two funds. For OPEB, we continue to fully fund OPEB per the actuarial valuation. OPEB cost increase is projected to increase by 2.9%. Now these estimates for this and retirement on the next slide are based on the actual reports for this last past year. These estimates will definitely change when the actual report for July 22 is completed and that will uh, arrive around the 1st of November. This is shown as, as flat uh, for fiscal year 24. The previous actuarial forecast showed a decrease of about 10%. Um, I've been burned in the past by going with decreases before we see the next evaluation. So we're uh, projecting at this point a flat uh, retirement cost. Uh, we'll see what that turns out to be in November when the next valuation arrives. The initial at this initial, initial stage of budget development, an estimated increase to employee compensation of 9.3 million is included in the projections in salary markers. Figure includes annualization of fiscal year 23's wage adjustments, effects of the reclassification process, and a salary marker for fiscal year 24. The FOP will be in full contract negotiations this, this year. In fact, we're just now uh, moving toward beginning that. McGeo will have a wage and benefits reopener. We'll, we'll budget a compensation dollar marker at the fund level in the proposed budget. Next slide shows operating budget impact of about $650,000 is the initial estimate. And you see on the uh, list on the left, and I'll let you look at these for a second, uh, these are the projects that that 650,000 is uh, projected to be needed for uh, to open these um, improvements. Mr. Hall, I'm sorry. Is there? Um, I don't see anything. Is there any um, operating budget impact uh, for this building for our head Wheaton headquarters? Since it's, uh, you know, we're just getting back to using it a lot, and I'm just curious whether we've looked at the I see it that all this is parks related uh, I'm just wondering if there's anything uh, for our headquarters building key answer here is that uh, these are for newly opened facilities or new to be opened facilities in fiscal year 24 um, the Wheaton headquarters is uh, an existing facility was opened for years back and uh, that operating expense will show in the budget um, I have not yet seen uh, those projections for that, but wouldn't be included here because these are uh, new openings. And, and I will note that in our budget that you will be seeing, um, we do have a built-in, um, built into our base budget is operating expenses for this building, and we do have a um, sort of... Uh, CPI kind of increase each year. So that is built into our base budget. And then the last item on this page is uh, projected debt service based on a new bond issue um, in fiscal year 24. 
This chart shows the conglomeration of all the, of the previous slides to show the total cost pressure at this point uh, for each of the two funds and in total, um, about 3.2 million for the admin fund, 11.3 million for the park fund. Uh, it also includes at the last, next to the last line, major known commitments. We produce a list of major known commitments for Montgomery County um, offices uh, early on in the process that was uh, submitted yesterday uh, to the county. We include them here uh, because it's things that uh, have been determined uh, that will be in the base budget as we move forward. The largest external cost pressure for our budget continues to be the Montgomery County uh, government revenue challenges. Uh, though we have not heard anything uh, specific this year uh, as to what that forecast might portend. This graph and the next graph uh, show by fund the um, uh, results of the previous um, charts and uh, numbers. On the left is a graph show comparing the projected property tax revenue and the projected expenditures at this point. Again, these expenditures are do not include um, any um, improvements to our services. They're just base budget uh, in, uh, necessities. Um, at this point, it shows that with a, proper, a small property tax rate increase, we'll be uh, well balanced uh, going forward. We'll see how that works out. Uh, on the right, you'll see a projected fund balance, uh, actuals up through uh, fiscal year 23, and then uh, trending down. Uh, the key note here is that the, uh, the note at the bottom of the page of that million six shown in fiscal year 24, the reserve amount is a million two. So we're, tr we're trying to hold the undesignated fund balance uh, in our projections to four to five board in October, but they will be available around the 1st of November. So they'll be factored into the departmental presentations as well as my summary presentation in uh, the November planning board meeting. Okay, very good. My second question had to do with um, the, the revenue challenges, um, how do you propose or, or what would you recommend um, we do to kind of make sure that our budget takes that into account without knowing whether or not there's really going to be a shortfall or, or some other scenario? Again, it's an assumption and, and, and it's a little bit of um, playing with numbers, but I, I just, I'm curious as to what you suggest. Um. The best answer I have is is essentially a non-answer, unfortunately. <laughs> um, we uh, we uh, pardon the language, but we play the budget game a bit differently between the two counties. Uh, in Prince George's, we have a steady tax rate, and we build up fund balance, uh, and we and, and then we burn down fund balancing. We try to stay maintain steady um, operating um, budgets. Um, on the Montgomery side, they. Uh, treat us as a member of their entire package uh, for tax purposes and consequently utilize our fund balance and tax rates uh, change up and down. Um, as you saw from that slide, they do go up and they do go get down in the years, uh, depending on overall county revenue picture and their and what's impacting them uh, as well, you know, because they receive revenue from multiple sources that we do not. 
Uh, and, but they also have multiple um, budgetary pressures such as schools that uh, um, impact the overall picture. Uh, at this point, we don't know what that picture looks like. And our job primarily is to prepare a budget for our needs based on reasonableness. Uh, and uh, so at the very least, those who review our budget know what we need, even if they cannot you know, afford it all in a given year. Um, and I'm sorry, that's the best answer I have today. I'll take it. Thank you. Um, You've you given me an idea um, about what, how to prepare as we review these budgets moving forward. And um, I don't have any other questions. I look forward to your return um, when you have the actuarial information. Again, I think it could potentially impact. I'm seeing in other sectors that um, some of the actuarial numbers are showing more extended um, life um, for mostly for females, but for males as well. Um, and we'll see how that potentially impacts some of the, the figures that we've seen on, on these slides. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, Sushi, I have a follow-up question on what you said, the difference between Prince George's County uh, sustaining their budget and us. Uh, you got a new council coming on board, new members, different perspective perhaps. Is this something uh, that the chair and commission and with the budget people uh, should take a look at? Is there any potential to, if that's more, the condition is more stable in Prince George's, is that something we, and we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the bi-county creation? Uh, is that something that could be looked at or should be looked at? I'll defer to Jerry, expertise. So. Jerry, the reason that Prince George's does it the way they do it is they have different charter limit uh, interpretations. So their uh, fund balance can grow without really compete without they can't really yeah. they don't have any incentive to take our fund balance and use it to pay for other things in montgomery county if we grow the fund balance then the county council looks at that as money that they that's available for us so they can lower our tax rate increase the tax rate for property taxes for the general fund and fund other programs so it's just a difference in the in the yeah, structure. Yeah, I understand. I, you know, whether is there any potential for change of that, but maybe not. We, I'll, we, I'll defer to you. We, we, yeah. we wish, but unfortunately, the, yeah. that okay. it, you know, it's actually identical charter limit language, but they, it was interpreted differently like 20 years ago, and it's okay. proven impossible to you know unwind that. Got you. All right, thank you. Any other questions or comments? If not, we will look forward to seeing John Kroll back again uh, in the near future. Thank you, folks. Thank you. And we will be back in a second to finally talk about semi-annual.
We're back and ready to talk about the semi-annual with Gwen and Mike. Uh, thank you. Um, Mike and I were just talking and uh, remembering who goes first this time, and I think it is planning's turn to go first. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really am interested in some uh, guidance from, uh, from the board. Uh, my thought had been, since this will be my last semiannual, to focus on, and it will be right after our Makeover Montgomery conference, to sort of focus on, as it says in the outline from 2013 to now, how have we been accomplishing making over Montgomery? And sort of identifying again that theme of best urban, best suburban, best rural, going through and describing in the urban areas both the master plans and some of the implementation that we've done in Bethesda, Silver Spring, White Flint, Grosvenor. In the suburban areas, talking about how we've also done great master plans and implementation. And when I talk about implementation, what I, want, I, I wanted to emphasize are buildings and projects that have actually been constructed or are under construction right now. And so we have uh, images for projects in, in each of the areas that I'm mentioning that uh, actually almost we're seeing how fancy we can get technologically if we can sort of do a, a 3D model that's sort of before and after of some of these areas. Uh, for the suburban areas, it's uh, areas like Rock Spring, Montgomery Village, West Bard, Littonsville, Chevy Chase Lake, and again, in most of those communities, there has been great <laughs> and positive imp implementation of the master plans for those areas. Uh, in our rural areas, uh, Sandy Spring and Ashton, plus all of our work on agritourism, solar projects, wineries and breweries. I, I had staff look up um, in the last nine years or so, we've had about a dozen new wineries and breweries open in our rural areas. And that is a, a, an enormous change. Uh, and then emphasizing some of the things that, again, that we have been doing that have helped us accomplish this making over of Montgomery, the zoning code rewrite, our work on Vision Zero with the bicycle and pedestrian plans, the corridor forward plans, the complete street design guidelines, uh, which I think are going to have a, a dramatic effect as they begin being implemented our Design Excellence Initiative, our Reforest Montgomery Initiative, our Equity and Planning Agenda, our Speed to Market and Regulatory Approvals. And then in Speed to Market, give some of our statistics about timelines and then move briefly into, again, I, I was really in a way planning on these first uh, topics to be the body of our presentation and then to move uh, again briefly into plans, studies, and projects that are in progress that we're going to be uh, starting, which you can see on the second page, some of the innovative engagement we're, we're using, and then 
we do have a few uh, schedule updates for plans that are in the work program, our famous bar chart uh, that we would want to, uh, to show uh, the changes to uh, the schedules for a couple of different projects. We had mentioned to you, and you'll probably be hearing, for example, that the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment is probably going to have a bit of a delay. Uh, there's been a lot of change in Tacoma Park and it's been a little hard to engage uh, the city and the Adventist group, who is one of the bigger property owners in that minor master plan. Again, you'll hear more about that this later in this meeting, but that plan is probably gonna have about a six month delay or so. Um, so we'll, we'll have to highlight some of those delays. So, um, but, I am interested in uh, hearing from the board uh, about things that you feel it's important for us to focus on. I mean, one thought that we had was, you know, given the uh, conversations about Thrive, should we be talking about that? Should we talk about it all the implication on our work program? Should we be talking about, um, in maybe more detail, our equity and planning efforts? You know, what what are the things the board would like us to uh, to emphasize? Well, I had a couple of comments on that. Um, so, I think, given where we're at, uh, not only um, uh, locally, nationally, on the state side. I think housing is something that we really need to capture as something that um, not only the, the statistics around it, but you know what really struck me last time uh, when you broke down all the different projects that were in the pipeline and the average MPDU units. I think there's still a lot of you know confusion about what's happening in this county and where we are building housing and how it's happening. And I know the chair is going to be talking about you know, this, this idea of displacement and disinvestment. But I think that theme should continue. So just looking at my notes here, for instance, um, the master plan implementation, I think is going to be really important because it kind of shows the story. One of the things that I think you could even mention in here because it's now been noticed to the public, I think the public meeting is going to be on September 22nd, is the Forest Glen Medical Center site. Uh, which is going to have, I think, between 380 and 412 units. That's an unusual site because not only did this council approve the zoning for that site, but it was a site that no one ever imagined would ever work out in terms of the numbers. And so the, the idea that we're putting housing on sites that currently don't have any kind of uh, – there's no displacement happening. It's a, park, it's a large parking lot. It's a medical center that's kind of – gone through its end of its cycle, I think that's, that's really important. Um, but I, I was really struck by the, um, the MPDU averages. I think that's going to be very helpful. Um, also, uh, the economic development element, I think there should be a section of this. I know we've talked about this, but the, the planning department is really, uh, in many ways, the start of how a lot of economic development happens in this county. And so whether it's showcasing you know, some of the new headquarters that we have, for instance, the Choice Hotels and Pike and Rose or any other projects, I think putting that front and center is, is really important. But the, the housing element, I think, is something that people really want to hear about, and we need to showcase how we're really working hard to meet our goals. 
And I think the, the more you can break that down in terms of projects would be very helpful. Um, trying to look at my other notes. That's the main stuff for me. So <clears throat> just to back on what uh, Vice Chair Verma said, that the, um, <clears throat> the economic development, I don't know how uh, easy or difficult this would be, but it would be helpful to talk about when our plans are implemented. You know, the, the plans themselves are the beginning of the process, and the implementation of those under the, those that have gotten out of the ground, um, I don't know whether it's something that our uh, our, our um, research group can do, is put together kind of what the value added to the county has been in economic development for those projects. And I, it's not just the, um, and I think we should talk about it, economic development, not, not just as the, the fiscal impact, but also the housing ties into that because it, it actually brings more housing for those businesses and essentially could attract more. Um, but if we have numbers that can show implementing our master plans has brought this much additional, um, whether it's tax base or indirect income into or revenues into the county, I think that would be really helpful. We might not be able to do that for everything, but we might be able to like select one master plan and talk about it for that, whether it would be Bethesda or Chevy Chase Lake or something like that, where we could talk about, you know, Chevy Chase Lake occurs to me because there's a discrete number of development projects. It's not hundreds of development projects. There's a discrete number of them. And we could, I'm looking at uh, <laughs> our team, um, we could look at, uh, you know, trying to pull some numbers on what the actual land values have been, what the, um, you know, tax increases have been, that kind of thing. That would be great as a model. I'm sorry. I, I just had a suggestion along yeah. those lines, which I think is consistent with what Gwen is saying. Um, I think in order to limit the scope, yeah, do like one building or a small group of buildings. Like I was kind of thinking the Elm or some, one of the really, you know, trophy class buildings in Bethesda, but it could be Chevy Chase Lake, it doesn't really matter. And to sort of go through uh, what's the property tax revenue from that building and to connect that to the cost of services. So, you know, and the number of school children, for example, because I think we're about to get back into some of that discussion next year with the new council because some of them were not around for all the gift discussion and there I, I just noticed during this last uh, primary election uh, some of the council members have, who are or the the uh, I guess you'd say putative council member elects are uh, you know kind of receptive to these arguments that oh well I'm for housing but we got to worry about infrastructure so only if we can make sure that it pays for the infrastructure, only if the infrastructure is in place. So I think you could kind of get ahead of, of this with, a lot, with something along the lines of what you and Carol were just talking about by taking a building and saying, all right, um, you know, a building like the Elm or even one of those multifamily buildings in Chevy Chase Lakes has X number of units, it generates Y amount of property tax revenue, about half, even more than half of that property tax revenue is going straight to MCPS. So to emphasize the idea that, you know, this debate about like impact fees is kind of really uh, over the long run, not even particularly material. It's the fact that a building, a really expensive, 
you know, market rate building throws off a ton of tax revenue that subsidizes everything else that happens, and it doesn't generate a lot of cost in terms of uh, particularly schools, but also things like transportation because it's right next to metro, vehicle miles traveled are relatively low, and it's very efficient to, to serve. So if you took one building or just a very small number of buildings and kind of spun that out a little bit, I think that might be a easier to get your arms around, particularly in the time we have available, but also in terms of explaining it, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to, you know, do like all of Bethesda or, you know, an entire master plan. And it might kind of be helpful at making an argument that leads to things down, down the road. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Because what I'm looking actually for future, um, as we move into the future, is to have a clear understanding of what um, economic development impact we have, both from the planning perspective, but from development review. And it becomes actually a celebration of what we do that will then uh, be a more positive result. And I think that that might lead into um, a, a clear understanding of, of where we're going and that, you know, what we contribute, the value that we add. Um, and that's always what we're trying to, you know, to make sure that they understand, but meaning this, the council. <laughs> and this has also been a good year for biotech and in terms of especially how quickly our staff has really put forth a lot of these projects. I think that's also something you may want to consider kind of putting as a separate line item of just dedicating to it because we are doing so much there and we're slowly getting higher, higher in the ranks nationally. So I think that's something that um, is really important. And it's also important to highlight this stuff because when you do have an ask for more planners, you can justify it by the amount of projects you're doing. So I think connecting the two, I think is gonna, it should be part of your narrative. Even though you're showcasing what you're doing, I think this is also a good time to just kind of hint and say, look, we're doing all this work, but we're gonna need additional support based off of just what we're seeing in the queue and what we've done in the past. Uh, Jerry, just have a, a couple comments, if I may. Uh, I had a chance to speak to Gwen the other, uh, I guess the other day, yesterday. Uh, next Wednesday, I'm going to, I'm on the Racial Equity Social Justice Committee and on the agenda is the county executive speaking about the Thrive 2050. Uh, uh, and I just see that as a kind of a wrap-up document that brings everything together that uh, the other commissioners have talked about. And I understand Gwen's going to send me an email or has sent me an email about some of the comments we made. Again, we have a new, uh, some new members coming on the council, perhaps some different perspectives. Uh, but I think that kind of brings it all together. Uh, a couple other things that, Gwen, uh, maybe you didn't totally cover, but our efforts on, obviously, historic preservation in some cases. And the other thing that uh, the chair said uh, about the uh, infrastructure, we have an effort looking at additional transit op operations in the county that we're taking a look at. And then the other thing that has come up, uh, the ability of something like WSSC to meet the requirements in some of the more urban areas like Silver Spring. So again, uh, I, if there are any comments or 
retort on the comments uh, on the Thrive 2050, I think that would be very important to emphasize those and how it brings everything together. And that's all I have at the moment. Director Wright, I did have a couple of suggestions um, and thank you for asking the question. I like the idea of the best urban, suburban and rural. Um, I echo what um, Vice Chair said regarding the economic development um, component. It's something that we are having more discussions about and we're seeing other regions talking about what economic development means, but not just in terms of the tax incentive and but they're really talking about what's the benefit. And I'm hoping that in your presentation, you can talk about the connection with economic development and community benefit. Many of the things that you have on the list, there is a community benefit. And I I want to um, ask if you would highlight this predictive analysis because every council member has received commentary from their constituents regarding the walkability or ability to get from one part of the county to another, whether it's via public transportation or crossing a particular street or streets. Um, but I, again, I also wanted to, um, I think your talk regarding the speed to market, but again, that connection from economic development to community benefit. And we see this also with the Farrell and Briggs Cheney. Um, I, I've mentioned this project before, and I think it's important when we talk with the council to show them that this is a repeatable process that again, is about the community benefit but also there's a there's that economic development component that um, that is present. We're not necessarily teasing it out, but it is there. And that's all my comments at this time. So thank you. That's great feedback. And we will uh, look at how to integrate those themes that you all have emphasized. I think they're excellent themes. Uh, and we'll look at how to integrate that in to the presentation and still leave time for Mike <laughs> to talk about parks. That's always the trick. <laughs> well, uh, before you turn to Mike, I thought we were, I thought this was um, Embrace Immodesty Day for Gwen. So, uh, you know, this is Gwen's last summer annual. So I think it shouldn't just be a subtext. It is the, you know, uh, explicit uh, message that this is uh, a recap of the things that this council and Gwen have, and all of us together, but it is all about Gwen this time, <laughs> uh, to really uh, highlight uh, the achievements of her uh, tenure as the planning director. We shouldn't, uh, we should not be modest about that. She should not be modest about that. She should embrace the uh, praise that she has earned for a job well done over a period of many years under some very trying challenging, complicated circumstances. Make sure you bring your award yeah. with you so you can show it off. Especially the Public Engagement Award for Thrive. <laughs> Mike. Okay, it's time to switch to the parks. And uh, you've got my outline. I welcome, I think we have a good list of things to talk to the council about that are pretty good and impressive, but I welcome your feedback uh, and thoughts on these items and others. So uh, my plan is to start with two really, really good plans that the planning board has approved and just highlight the key recommendations of those plans. The uh, 
prose plan, of course, with the active urban and social theme while per still preserving and protecting our environment. And then the Wheaton Regional Park uh, master plan, things like uh, highlights like improved access to the park uh, and pedestrian and bike access through the park and the very exciting adventure park that we contemplate there. So I think those are two really good plans we'll uh, brief the council on. And then I talk to you almost every week about our really uh, robust park activation program. Just as an example, uh, tonight we have two concurrent events going on. We have Yappy Hour at Elm Street Park in Bethesda, and we have Salsa Night uh, at uh, Long Branch Arliss Park going on at the same time. So these are just uh, a listing of some of the things that are going on, but we'll have a slide or two that just uh, makes it abundantly clear that we are being successful uh, with our program to get uh, lots of happy people socializing and engaging uh, in our parks. One of the things I'm gonna mention to the council on this theme, uh, and this fits other uh, topics too, as we have really moved the Parks Department forward with resources that the council always provides at the last minute through the reconciliation process and the budget, the staff that run these program, this uh, team really has all come throughout this process. So I just wanna highlight uh, the success of this program and, and message to the council that when you give us resources for things we say we're gonna do, we actually do them and this living proof that uh, there's events going on almost every evening and uh, weekend throughout the summer. Uh, the, I'll just uh, give a shout out for the uh, Friendship Picnic. That's coming up this Sunday. The weather's predicted to be great. That's at Wheaton Regional Park and we expect well over a thousand people uh, to come. And we're certainly getting a lot of love uh, for uh, our upcoming Rocky Horror Picture Show. People think that is a great idea. So it's really fun coming up with these new themes and events. And people, as they say, if you build it or if you program it, they will come. Uh, we also, number four, project delivery timeline. These are just some of the projects that'll appear on it, but we do a graphic every year that shows projects that have come on the ground in the past and projects that are gonna come online in the future for about a year. And it's always an impressive way to show that uh, we're, we're getting things done throughout our capital program and getting new parks and renovated parks on the ground. Uh, item five, similar theme, uh, we have a level of effort uh, program called Park Refreshers where we go into older parks and renew them and we just will give a uh, um, listing of what's uh, coming up and what's been done through the refresher program, projects like Edith Rockmartin that are done, and projects like Carolyn Freeland in Bethesda that are uh, in a design phase and are gonna be under construction soon. Item six is uh, we always talk about our seeking of uh, funds outside the Montgomery County tax base, and we'll highlight what grants we are seeking and what we've received. Uh, on trails, we'll highlight our uh, trail ambassador program uh, that we, uh, our pilot program that we held that was very, very successful. And the upcoming opening this fall of the very awesome Fairland uh, Skills Bike Park that we got a state uh, grant for. Uh, we will talk about South Silver Spring Park, uh, the uh, building we bought down there and our efforts to uh, 
uh, demo that building and at least get a temporary park in place and, and lightning fast time between acquisition and when we'll have uh, people gathering there. And, uh, and then the creative outreach uh, category related to number eight, we actually have our community meeting to talk about that, uh, the vision for that park uh, at Denizens uh, next week which is right across the street from it, which I think will bring in a lot of people. You all know about our Long Branch initiative. We're in a very massive outreach phase, and it's great. I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback from different people that they really like what we're doing here in terms of uh, outreach and in engaging the community and their vision for what they want to see in these uh, Long Branch parks. I stopped at the um, uh, Long Branch Festival at Flower Ave Park last uh, Saturday, it was just uh, a beautiful vision. As soon as I walked in, the park was at capacity. There was music. Our staff had a table there uh, to promote the Long Branch Initiative, and I just watched people actually engaging with the park staff throughout the afternoon um, because of the way they invited with the graphics and the, uh, you know, the stuff they had that people just kept coming over. So stay tuned for that. Uh, on item 10, we'll talk about what we've done with our uh, small but mighty program access team. We had an event uh, with a mural dedication at Wheaton Regional Park uh, that was uh, designed by uh, a young man uh, on the autism spectrum. We had five council members show up for that dedication. It was a great event and uh, highlight also the growth in our Montgomery Explorers program, which is a walking program for citizens age 50 or better, uh, and that uh, continues to grow. Uh, moving on to athletic fields, uh, just again, real hard examples of progress of things we're doing. We're uh, renovating uh, two fields at Blair High School. It's under construction. and. Uh, this is great because there were two spaces at Blair High School, which is in such a prime location, uh, you know, what between the Beltway and Colesville Road and University, that uh, had space for uh, fields and games, but uh, the school board was not maintaining them in a way that they could be used that way. So we're going to go in and renovate them, and it'll be a win-win because the students at the high school have more uh, and better space for practices. And then in the evenings and weekends when the school isn't using them, we will permit those spaces to uh, leagues, which has been the quest we've been on for more than 20 years to both increase the capacity and quality of uh, athletic fields in the county for our many, many uh, adult and youth sports leagues. Uh, number 12, we will brag about the Enterprise Fund and uh, Division and how they have proactively navigated their way through the pandemic. The fund is healthy, the fund balance is healthy, and uh, it is no small feat, and hats off to uh, Christy uh, <clears throat> Turnbull and our enterprise uh, division for being very creative about ways to keep revenue coming in while we're cutting expenditures throughout the pandemic and making sure that fund emerged healthy, which it did. And then winding down, uh, we'll talk to them about park visitation data pre and post COVID. We're using a whole bunch of different mechanisms to count people, electronic counters, uh, street light data, uh, a host of things we've been focusing on to know whether, uh, where and when people are visiting our parks and how many. 
And then lastly, uh, we'll talk about uh, our volunteer program. The number of volunteers is always growing and highlight uh, some of the things that have happened, including um, the reality that we uh, not only donate food from our excess food from our community gardens at the end of uh, each fall, but we're actually now growing food specifically to donate uh, to uh, food programs at our Pope Farm Nursery. So that's my list, and I welcome any feedback. Um, I have two comments. Number one, um, um, I just want to give a shout-out on the program access, and I think that's great. I had a uh, – your staff gave me a wonderful presentation on that, and um, I think it's a great highlight for – uh, for the council to know what we're doing in that regard, and that would tie in one of my pet projects, which is the Wheaton Stables, as part of that. Um, so that's number one. Um, and the other thing I want, which I thought we, we did that before, we did before, which I thought was very effective, was to have a map to show equity focus areas and then to, um, to make sure that we're continuing to underscore where that the the activation that we're doing, the projects that we're doing in parks are are really spread out and we are continuing because this is never, this isn't a beginning and ending. This is something that we're going to have to continue to demonstrate is the, um, you know, that we are looking at equity focus areas to make sure that our services uh, that we provide through the parks continues um, in to, to, uh, to enhance the um, you know the the those areas and and the service for people that live in those areas um, and that we're you know we're we're always thinking about how to deal with the equity and and uh, implement those uh, activities in this county. So yeah, we, we that's that's great feedback. We we will do that. We've looked at different ways to highlight, but we'll figure out a way to make those jump out and. The, when, when we do that exercise, both with capital projects and programs, the data shows really good results. Just for example, tonight, program in Bethesda, program in Long Branch. I think this is a, a great list, and um, I'm sure you have everything in here. I, I didn't notice, I didn't see the, the chair's initiative with regards to the bike, mountain bike program is that going to be showcased here as well uh, I, I didn't see that on the list we probably can uh, cover that under the trails okay topic. yeah that was just such a such a nice visual too to kind of show the kind of outreach and kind of work we're doing with the community um yeah on that no by the way since you brought it up um that was so well received um and i think the council loves it they they will love to hear about it um, I'm really hoping that we will have, you know, we're, we're, we have um, a lot of vacancies still. And so just like last year was going to be not just year-end money, but I guess you'd say probably some mid-year money. And um, I'd just been started kind of poking at this a little bit and seeing if we could get, uh, if we do have some resources available, <clears throat> you know, as we look at it at mid-year, to buy a bunch of bikes. Because um, you know that's something we can hold on to them. We don't have to yeah. get rid of them all at once. But while we have an opportunity where there may be some laps to work with, and you know to really 
I think there's some issues to be worked out with, with how this program can be sustained from the point of view of staffing. You know, we'll do it, but it's challenging to figure out how you're going to, you know, it's pretty, pretty staff intensive to, to run. But in the meantime, while we're sort of scaling it up, I think it would be great to buy bikes in some quantity, both because we get a better deal and also we may uh, not have an opportunity again to make a big uh, purchase of bikes and we could store them at Green Farm or whatever while we... So I'm, I'm hoping that um, the rest of the board will just support that uh, direction to the Parks Department to be looking for opportunities to make a significant uh, bike purchase sometime this year in the event those kind of... Uh, that, that money is available. Absolutely. I think that's definitely worth funding. And I, just to piggyback on what Commissioner Rubin said in terms of equ equity, I think uh, giving younger people the opportunity to do something that they otherwise wouldn't have because of the finances that's associated with it is huge. So I think capturing that in that realm, I think is really important. And, uh, you know, and then, and showcasing or maybe giving a preview to what the chair just mentioned about how we like to expand it, I think is a good opportunity. I think this is like really nice if we can use these opportunities to not only show what we've been successful in and like also what we want to do in the future so they know that it's coming uh, and we're doing a good job. We're using our resources in a, in a positive manner. Um, definitely, um, <laughs> since you and I were the VIP um, um, uh, guests for that event, the Holy Festival was so unusual. Uh, it, was, it was one of the largest crowds. The economic impact, going back to what we talked about, um, I think is something you should talk about. How these park projects are actually affecting local economy, how they're giving um, local vendors opportunities that they never had before. I think you should be capturing it in that way. And, you know, this was an, a, a different event for this group because it was an exclusive event that they never had before. And um, showcasing how many people were there and the fact that there were no issues, there were no, you know, fights or brawls or trash. Uh, these are the kind of things that I think allow the Parks Department to have more flexibility going forward um, and even taking it to the next level. But I think that economic development uh, part of it is our parks are so incredible that people are moving here just for it. I mean, you met someone re recently, uh, last night, who moved from Colorado to Kensington who was saying that these are the, be the best parks he's ever seen uh, in the country. And we are in that regard. So I think um, showcasing that is really important. Of course, uh, the volunteer programs are great. And I always love to see the weed warriors because I just, you know, it's, it seems like it's not that of an important thing to do, but like the fact that we have all these invasive vines and you know the way they take over our our um, local ecosystems, I think showcasing that is incredible. Our volunteer program is really uh, the backbone of so much what, what what we do in the parks department as well. So I think showcasing that would be great. But otherwise, you know, you always get the best slides because once you do the before and after of all the fields, it's game over. Everyone's just like, ooh and ah for like uh, 30 minutes. So whoever decides to go first this year, you know, it's, if, if it's the Parks Department, Gwen, then you'll have always a lot to, to make up for. Is it your turn? Yeah, okay. it's, it's Gwen's year. I, there's no, no debate. I just wanted to add one other comment, um, and I don't know how to do this, how you could do this, but um, one of the things that I'm going to be looking, f that I, you know, would look for is 
the importance of the coordination between the parks and the planning departments. So if we could talk about that a little bit um, as maybe the transition from, you know, from Gwen, from your presentation to Mike's presentation, in a way that talks about, you know, why as an agency we're a park and planning commission and that how the two inter are interfaced and interplay and the importance of that. And it doesn't have to be anything long. It can just be a, you know, just a way of transitioning. But I think I want I would like to see that start to get into the, you know, really when people think of us and our agency, they think of us as, you know, because we work together so well and how important it is um, that we were set up as, you know, an agency dealing with both. I, I, I love that idea, and I think I'll very easily be able to use a few examples of how coordinated we were at the beginning of a planning process and how quickly we got some things that the plan recommended on the ground. But I, I think that's a great point. Okay. Uh, if there are no other questions or comments, we can uh, move to the Convocar Minor Master Plan update.
Okay, we're back for the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan update with um, Ms. Williams and Ms. Stam. Good morning. For the record, my name is Melissa Williams and I am the project lead for the Tacoma Park. Sorry, Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment. I am here this morning to present an update on the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment, including a briefing on the Community Engagement Update Report, plan partnerships, and the next steps, including the fall 2022 visioning efforts. I'm joined by Lauren Stamm, uh, Larissa Clevin, the Master Plan Supervisor, and Elsa Heisel McCoy, our Down County Chief. Um, today's agenda includes the following. We'll talk about the, we'll provide an update from our, with, from our partners. We'll also discuss the key takeaways from our outreach efforts, provide a visioning overview and next steps and an updated plan timeline. The City of Tacoma Park serves as our primary partner in this planning effort and we hold weekly meetings to discuss the plan and the process. In addition to this planning effort, the city has also undertaken analysis of their public spaces and, the, and Maple Avenue, parts of which are located within the plan area. Staff will incorporate findings from these studies into this plan where applicable. Additional partners also include the Washington Adventist Hospital and other large property owners, including the Montgomery Housing Partnership. The planning team uh, holds regular monthly meetings with Washington Adventist where we are briefed by their development team on the status of the Washington Adventist Hospital site and university. Staff also meets with other stakeholders, including residents, civics, other community organizations, and county agencies. Although the plan area has a range of community assets, including high-density affordable housing, stakeholders expressed a desire for additional public amenities and other improvements. These desires are noted in the Community Engagement Update Report. Staff will incorporate their responses along with information received from other stakeholders, including property owners, local businesses, and the City of Tacoma Park into our visioning efforts so that we might answer these three questions. These questions are, what is the future of Maple Avenue and the surrounding area? What is the future of the Washington Adventist campus and surrounding area? And how can this plan build on community assets that would improve the quality of life in the plan area? And now I'll turn it over to Lauren Stamm where she'll discuss our community engagement efforts. Good morning, commissioners. I'm Lauren Stamm from Down County for the record. Uh, we began engagement for this plan last September. After hearing from over 550 community, community members and stakeholders, we took all the information we heard and summarized it in an interim report to share with you as well as the community. This report reflects all of the comments we collected through our partnership with Everyday Canvassing, our online survey, as well as conversations with individual community members during our outreach and meetings with community groups. Each comment or response collected was coded to help us determine what issues were most important to the community. First, I'll share the main takeaways from that work, which reflect what we heard most frequently over the past year of engagement. Residents really enjoy living in Tacoma Park and appreciate its walkability, safety, proximity to DC, Silver Spring, Sligo Creek, and small businesses. Community members lamented the loss of the Washington Adventist Hospital and want to see a health clinic or urgent care facility remain on this site. Community members see Sligo Creek Stream Valley Park as an important asset to the community and want to make sure it's protected through better stormwater management and environmentally sensitive design, especially on the Washington Adventist campus. 
Though there were diverse views on scale, compatibility, and type, community members would like more housing, especially housing that is affordable, to be a part of the future development of the Washington Adventist campus. In addition to housing, community members would also like to see more walkable retail options, particularly a grocery store. Community members would also like to see more resources for the community incorporated into the redevelopment of the Washington Adventist campus. Most often mentioned were a community gathering space, a park, a gym or fitness center, and a swimming pool. Before we get into the more specific comments from our various engagement efforts, I want to share with you the demographics of the study area, which is a little larger than the plan area, as you can see on the map to the left. The study area is predominantly black or African American and also has a large percentage of white residents. Last spring, we partnered with Everyday Canvassing to canvas all of the multifamily residential buildings along Maple and Lee Avenues within the plan area. They were able to interview 239 residents and provide interpretation into several languages, including French, Amharic, and Spanish. The majority of those interviewed self-identified as African. The second most re represented group was African-American, followed by Latinx, and many chose not to respond to the question. You'll notice that the racial and ethnic categories on this slide are different from the last. Everyday canvassing was able to collect much more nuanced racial and ethnic information than we are able to gather for the census. Um, so that's the reason for that inconsistency. Can we just stop here for a second? Sure. This table is really important. It showcases the diversity of our engagement process. And I think you should definitely be showcasing this. Glad this might also be a good uh, slide for your um, semi-annual. But, it, you know, it's we often get criticism, and, and rightfully so, that most of the participants that are, um, you know, often giving feedback do not represent the demographics of the study area. And this is one of the few times where it's actually pretty close. Am I, am I missing something? I mean, it, this is a little bit unusual. No, I, I, I think you're spot on. We, we put a lot of effort into making sure that we reach the population that represents the people that are living in the study area. Yeah, so this is a big deal. So I definitely want to just stop here for a moment and just uh, recognize that. Please continue. Thank you. Um, so from this effort, we heard that Maple Avenue is generally a safe, quiet place to live, and many of those interviewed called it a good community, although some did mention concerns about thefts, break-ins, and drug use. Residents are pleased with the quality of the schools, but are in need of additional resources for the community, including childcare, easier access to government assistance, healthcare, exercise equipment, and classes for computer literacy and English literacy. Some residents reported satisfaction with the transportation service in the area, um, especially walkability, although a few mentioned that the bus service schedule is limiting and should have more direct connections to places of interest, such as downtown Silver Spring. Overwhelmingly, residents expressed a need for a grocery store on the Washington Adventist campus, as there is not one within walking distance. Residents would also like be interested in seeing a new community center or gathering space, a recreation center, a playground, and more housing. Residents also reported some issues with the maintenance and security of the apartment buildings. Everyday Canvassing also canvassed the Washington Adventist University campus to hear directly from students and faculty. The majority of those interviewed identified as African-American. The second most represented group was Latinx, followed by West Central African and white, and many chose not to respond. They shared with us that the campus's existing facilities are aging in bad condition and require upgrades, in particular the dormitories. Um, students mentioned that they would like to see more social activities and events on campus, as well as spaces to socialize. They also want to see new food options or restaurants near the campus or on the campus, as well as entertainment options. 
Students also reported they do not feel connected to the surrounding community, and many said they don't spend time in the area aside from their classes and often frequent downtown Silver Spring instead. Throughout all of our outreach efforts, uh, we also encouraged everyone we met to fill out our online search sorry, online questionnaire, uh, and it was very successful with 239 responses. The majority of those who responded to the questionnaire identified as white. Here's what we heard from the questionnaire. Residents are passionate about Tacoma Park's walkability, trees, diversity, local businesses, green spaces and parks, small town feel, public transit, liberal and progressive values, proximity to DC, Silver Spring, and Sligo Creek. When asked about what needs improvement, residents focused on the underutilized land that's currently on the Washington Ventus campus, the amount of impervious surface, the campus's aging facilities, the need for more housing in the area, issues with runoff into Sligo Creek, as well as concerns about pedestrian safety and connectivity. When asked about what should be preserved on the Washington Ventus campus, most residents responded that the open green spaces should remain, especially Sledding Hill, as it's known to the community, along with the trees and Sligo Creek Park. Some residents also said that nothing should be preserved. When asked about what should happen on the campus in the future, over overwhelmingly residents said they would like to see more housing on the campus, especially housing that is affordable. Residents also mentioned mixed-use development and the addition of retail or res restaurants. Um, we also heard from several residents that they would like to see a new high school in Tacoma Park, and this was a possible site. When asked to share concerns about the future of the campus, residents mentioned an increase, mentioned increased traffic as well as tension in the community over the development. Residents are also concerned that the campus will be overdeveloped or, on the other hand, uh, further deteriorate if no development takes place. So I had a question about this slide because this is interesting yes. just given the demographics that responded here. Here you have 81%. Uh, white or Caucasian responding. How did you deliver the online questionnaire? Um, was it done through email? Was it a URL that was posted? How and, and was there any outreach that was associated with that? Yes. Yeah, so this was a um, survey that was a link on our website. We we traditionally use SurveyMonkey, which we use for this this questionnaire, um, and we um, really encouraged uh, everyone we encountered at farmers markets. Um, and other events that we attended to part, to fill out the questionnaire? Right, um, so I think it's important to note that we were um, instructing people to utilize a QR code. So there was signage um, that was translated into all of the um, applicable languages and there was the QR code that was present and we would instruct them if they didn't have time to speak with us today, that they could follow up um, e signing up for our e-letter also using this QR code that would take them to the survey. And it, it was my experience um, just in participating in all of the engagement and outreach efforts that there were, um, we had, how, let me back up. We had two farmers markets that we attended. And I will say that, the, that a lot of these responses came from the Tacoma Park farmers market. And so that's the, the primary market for Tacoma Park. And then we attended a secondary market at the Crossroads Farmers Market. And so my experience in doing both of those activities is that we were, there were many people at the Tacoma Park Farmers Market that took the QR code and our information and said they would do it at home. And when we were at the Crossroads Farmers Market, we were actually able to talk to people when they approached us. And in many cases, they gave us the, their comments right then and there, and they didn't necessarily take the materials with them. and in didn't want to use the QR code. So I think we're kind of seeing the balance of 
people that may have been more comfortable with technology and, and doing it at home, and then people that were more comfortable with having that conversation with us. And even when we went with everyday canvassing, we knocked on the door and we talked to people. They were also given the opportunity to utilize the QR code to complete the survey as well. And we still ended up with this balance. Well, that's really, really helpful. And I think we should just hold on to this stuff because this is going to inform how we continue our public participation process. And um, it's just another data point, right? So this is why it's important to do the in-person canvas online and I think you might be right. There's some uh, potential technological gap. I saw maybe Commissioner Sichi had a comment. Yeah, I, I did. I guess you beat me to the question. If I look at page eight and then I look at page 13, the two charts, uh, maybe a little harder to discern the, the colors, but uh, if I'm correct, Caucasian white was 81% and uh, Asian Pacific was 3%. But when you look at the chart, uh, the two. And so does that suggest any way? I, I know you mentioned some attempts to get additional information, but seems to me uh, bringing the chart together consistent with the population would be a good way to get responses of what should be done in, in the community. Well, uh, uh, and I do want to note, this is why we're doing multiple methodologies for outreach. I think the traditional online response to a questionnaire or a survey doesn't always get to underrepresented communities and people of color. But if you could go back a slide and just again remind folks that in this where we actually are doing canvassing, you're talking to the same number of residents as who submitted survey forms or questionnaires, but you have 45% African, 15% African American, um, uh, the 9% Latinx. I mean, you're getting much higher numbers of people of color. And I think what that is showing us is it's legitimate to, do, to use multiple methodologies, but the methodologies that seem to be working best for reaching these typically underrepresented groups is the actual personal knocking on the door and face-to-face -face conversation. And that is, uh, I think, a great lesson learned both from the Silver Spring Plan, which had a lot of these same kinds of outreach efforts, and this Tacoma Park Plan. So I do want to just, again, remind you all, when you look at the questionnaire, that's one methodology, and it's achieving one kind of outreach, but we're also doing these other kinds, and we have exactly the same number of people who were interviewed here as who submitted forms in the um, survey. Well, I think that's a good point. I guess there has been a degree of intimidation. Well, uh, they don't really care what we think. And I think if you broaden it and really go to the community and get that input, I think you will get some, uh, I think your approach is good to get in there and get it to the community so that you have a better representation of comments and input 
uh, from how the community shows shows up on a population basis. So good, good point. So. Thank you. And I'll just add one final note that, you know, we were deliberate in representing the information this way and wanting to show what we learned from each effort, because I think it is important to note, you know, what certain groups of people and which groups are more represented um, think about this, about this project. So we were very deliberate in wanting to do that um, because we know that these are not all equal. You know, we're not hearing from the same groups of people in each medium that we're doing engagement. This is Tina Patterson. I did have one additional question, um, and I'm looking at page nine in the actual uh, the engagement report where you mentioned having an interpreter with you. Um, and, and I can understand, and I, I agree with you regarding um, the sometimes the divide regarding um, the use of technology. Is, was the survey available in languages other than English? Was is my first question. And then my second question has to do with, um, and I, I saw some of the photos, was there an opportunity for those who were interested, um, maybe a, um, in addition to the QR code, did someone have an opportunity to fill in the, the survey on the spot or was it primarily the QR code? Um, so yeah, so the, the, I'll take the last question first. So the, they, there was no opportunity to complete the survey um, in real time with us. We were instructing them to go to the QR, to use the QR code to go to the online option. But we were asking the same question. So the questions that we, we asked remain the same. And so we were instructing people that didn't have time to participate in kind of the face-to-face -face activity that one option was for them to use the QR code to go to our survey. And so we did make accommodations on our site where people could actually translate the survey into the appropriate languages. And, and we used, um, I believe there was like the, the Google wid widget that allows them to kind of press the button to translate it into yes. another language. So that was the mechanism that we used. And we did understand that it was an additional step that people would have to take because when they opened up the survey, it would open up in English and then they would have to press another, go through another um, maneuver in order to translate it into the appropriate language. But we tried to explain that to people when they were present, that this is how it worked. And for those that needed assistance with kind of getting to the survey, we did that as well for the people that needed assistance. Thank you for the clarification. I appreciate it. Okay, great. So I will pick up back where we left off. Um, so throughout all of our outreach efforts, we encouraged everyone we met to fill out this our online questionnaire, um, and it was very successful with 239 responses. The majority of those who responded, I'm sorry, I think I, did we already? Do this? I did that part okay, I'm trying to figure out where I left off. I think we were a little bit deeper into this. Um, so when asked about what should be, wait, did we read the entire part thing? As well. Where did I leave off? You stopped. At oh, the we last were at the. Yeah. Okay. Last I'm so sorry. Look. When asked to share concerns about the future of the campus, uh, residents mentioned um, increased traffic as well as tension in the community over development. Residents were also concerned that the campus will be overdeveloped or further deterioration will occur if no development takes place. I think we may have actually been right here. Okay. Um, in addition to these efforts, we heard from many community members through our outreach uh, at farmers markets just outside the plan area, at National Night Out, at our own retail pop-ups where we set up tables in the plan's commercial areas, and at meetings with community and neighborhood groups. More detail about these efforts are included in the report, and now I'll hand it back to Melissa to discuss how we'll be moving into our next stage of engagement for the plan. 
Thank you. So our next stage will be the visioning um, phase. Our visioning efforts will focus on the potential futures for the plan area, and our primary event will be the open house scheduled for October 18th. This will take place at the Piney Branch Elementary School inside their cafeteria from 7 to 9 p.m. There will be boards and exhibits explaining planning terminology, the planning process, and also providing opportunities for feedback. As stated earlier, we plan to utilize the key takeaways noted in the community engagement update report as our organizing method. We will also make sure to provide, um, well, I'm sorry, we will also provide live interpretation services upon request, and this will also be available online on demand after the completion of the open house. And so the, now we'll talk about the update to the plan timeline. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the county's primary elections, ongoing city initiatives, and other happenings necessitated additional time to complete the existing conditions and engagement work. This included meeting with stakeholders and other landowners. As a result, the proposed schedule needed to incorporate an additional seven months into the plan timeline. We've discussed this with our plan partner, the City of Tacoma Park. We actually presented, presented this to them last night. And we've also discussed this with our other uh, major stakeholders. Staff proposes the following update to the plan schedule, and you can see that it adds an additional seven months. And um, so right now we are, if you can see that we're in fall 2022 to winter 2023, and that's the visioning and preliminary recommendations phase. And so that completes our presentation. Um, if you have any additional comments or questions. Um, I have uh, one specifically um, about the Washington Adventist campus. And, and it, it may not have been, you know, appropriate for today's discussion, but um, what is, because people are talking about what they see there, what they want there, um, what's the connectivity? Um, I, I'm not that familiar with that campus because, you know, it was always a, it was a hospital, and, it's a, and when we refer to it, we refer to it as a campus. And when I think of a campus, I think of a campus as more like an island, an exclusive. Yes. So my question is, um, I think it's really, or my comment is I think it's really important to address the connectivity, both pedestrian um, and, um, and vehicular, um, including buses, uh, the bus systems that people have talked about, the, the routes. Um, to make sure that whatever it is that uh, we end up recommending for that area, that it's everybody can access it. And I think it's because it's, it, it could be a, a big community asset. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, I, it's a little bit off um, from, from a, a locational standpoint, from the, the main town center of Tungong Park. So I think it, it really needs we would really need to focus on some of those access um, issues. Thank you. That's, that's actually a part of what we plan to do in our visioning. Um, one of our visioning exercises is a connectivity, um, kind of a mobility exercise, where we're going to look at kind of the potential future of making the campus more accessible, making it more open. Um, and I think it's also important to note that it's, it's not just the hospital site. We're actually working with the Washington Adventist University as well. And they are also looking, they're planning for a new future for themselves also. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're, yes. that you're coordinating directly with the school because I think that's an important asset. And, 
and it needs to become kind of a fabric of the yes. in the community and it, it may not be looked at that way but um, I think that's really important so thank you thank you I had a uh, just a general comment slash question uh, so interesting looking at table four on, on page 32 housing was mentioned the most uh, 81 times which I don't think would have been the case uh, there is a demographic shift happening in Tacoma Park now. And also people are more aware of the fact that we need more housing. Uh, question, I know there hasn't been any, correct me if I'm wrong, new development in Tacoma Park on the Montgomery County side since what, the 80s? Is that, is that a correct statement? Multifamily housing. Um, how does rent control fit into this? Is development not really possible in these sites i know i'm kind of addressing something that's you know elephant in the room but you know we we can vision and we can plan but you know we were just having a conversation about implementation can you really do anything if there are such strict controls and i think this is an important conversation to have for this plan because we are going to be gearing up for this conversation for the county council potentially and so as we do the work on this plan and see what the ramifications are for a incredible site that has so much potential, how do we uh, connect those two ideas um, in a real, real world example? I think it's going to be really important, not only for the county council to see, but also to the community to recognize that even though this may have been a policy that they thought was going to bring about uh, equity, it may have actually had the opposite effect. Sounds like, Elsa, you want to say something? Well, so that you're, I mean, you've, you have correctly identified one of the elephants um, in the room, and we have had conversations, I think, from the beginning of this plan about how the, the city's rent stabilization uh, policy is going to uh, impact you know, the results of this plan. And so we've been talking uh, with um, DHCA in terms of how the MPDU program interfaces with that. And so um, that is something that we have been talking about and will continue to talk about. And um, and yeah, so we, we have been talking about it. No answers yet. Okay. Stay tuned. Great. Just wanted to put it out there for the record. Uh, Jerry, Sushi, I have another question, if I may. And that is, sure. if I look at the map, uh, figure 10, uh, and you show the boundaries. I recall once there was a vote, uh, people in, the, in this area along New Hampshire, whether you wanted to be in Montgomery or Prince George's, uh, and the choice was to be in Montgomery County. Uh, in terms of the surveys, you show the boundary plan boundary area, and then the red line is the totality of, uh, I guess, Tacoma Park, the city boundary. Uh, your interviews were distributed throughout the red boundary, or were they focused a little bit in the plan area? That was one question. And then the other question in terms of, you know, the, the Adventist site somewhat abandoned, I guess, is some residual facilities, but is that a potential site for job generation in terms of more commercial or business and looking at jobs for the area? I suppose the advent of staying there and expanding the area, moving up 29. 
Okay. Um, two, kind of two questions. Yeah. Yes. So I will take the first question, and I think I'll, I'll lob the second question back to Elsa. Um, the first question, um, when we did the canvassing or the, the interviewing, those were actually very defined. There, um, along Maple Avenue, that's the that's essentially where all of the high-density housing is located. So the, that's all of your apartment buildings and your condominiums. We actually used the uh, canvassing service to door knock along Maple Avenue and along Lee Avenue. So I, I don't want to leave Lee Avenue out of this as well. Um, we knocked on all of those doors. Those were the people that got the direct interviews. And then we also utilized that same service specifically for the Washington Adventist University campus. And so we worked closely with students there. We actually had the student body president that was a part of the process, and they assisted us with um, interviewing the students. We did not utilize that service um, in the broader part of the plan. We actually went back to more typical um, outreach because that's your single family communities and also your small businesses. We actually um, reached out to the civics and the HOAs and the tennis associations, and we also sent out um, emails and other things to reach out to people that were not located either on the campus or specifically in one of those apartments or condominiums along Maple or Lee. Okay, you had touched on like transportation access, walking transit access. And so in terms of the, the uh, site there, the hospital site, is there looking at job uh, generation or job potential generated? Sure, so I, I can take that Elsa Heisel McCoy for the record. Uh, the so the campus now is home to the Washington Adventist University, which uh, employs uh, teachers and administrators. Um, on the hospital side, uh, I think there is still some uh, residual medical services being provided there under agreement under agreement with right. the state. There's also a, a, a medical office building that's a condominium um, uh, office condominium that is expected to remain. And I think at this point, though, the Adventist healthcare team sort of looking at the campus is looking at a variety of options. I think, you know, if job generation uh, were to be market feasible, I think that's something that uh, would generally be desirable. Um, so that that's one of the options. You know, the market particularly now is uh, is a little uncertain um, for, for uh, you know, developments that aren't sort of single-family homes. So I think we're definitely interested. They're definitely interested, and that'll be one of the options that uh, we'll be exploring as we move forward. Great. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. This is Tina Patterson. I just wanted to um, – um, Vice Chair mentioned earlier he didn't think that there had been any projects in this area. Um, we did have a it was a multi-family dwelling unit that was um, built along Maple Avenue in the high again as Ms. Williams indicated this is a high density area so there hasn't been any type of um, retail development but there has been some housing development and I, I want to encourage to the presenters um, as we're moving forward and I think you're doing you're going to do it although it wasn't specifically called out or teased out um, that the the groups that you mentioned I think are going to be helpful um, as allies as you move um, to the next phase of the visioning um, because this is a community with a mix of 
the high density dwelling units as well as single family homes. I think engaging and encouraging the um, participation of the, those other groups will encourage people to come in and weigh in um, and give you some some of the answers that you're looking for moving forward. Um, it's interesting. Years ago, I lived actually lived on Maple Avenue and. It was over 20 plus years ago, and not much has changed in this community in terms of the layout and the the um, mix of dwelling. But uh, when there is opportunity, the, the the residents of this community are engaged, and a lot of it has to do with bringing working with a trusted partner. And I think you're doing that. I would just encourage you to continue doing that moving forward. Thank Thanks. And and uh, again, um, Elza, the uh, Maple Avenue has been fortunate for uh, MHP and others to um, to spend money to reinvest in some of those buildings. There hasn't been new construction on Maple Avenue in some time um, or development projects. I think anything other than single family, I think it's been 25 years citywide. Uh, but I think uh, MHP... There's the development. They own five buildings, and they've reskinned some buildings and um, and are working on rehabbing. But in terms of new from the ground construction, uh, I think you're right. It, it's basically uh, stayed the same uh, since you were there. Hi, uh, Jerry. Sushi, if I recall correctly, there was the issue of uh, uh, state highway and layover unloading trucks versus driveway or access site improvement. Is that still pending? I believe that was on Maple Avenue. Maybe I'm wrong on that. No, that's a completely different part of Tacoma Park. That's okay, in right, Tacoma you. Junction, completely different yeah. area. Great. Thanks for the clarification. Thank you. Is is that those that Tacoma Junction area that where that project was that's in the plan area or not? It's not in the plan area. No. Oh, no, okay. again, if you look at the map of the plan area, it's a very constrained area yes. close to City Hall, that uh, property that is at Tacoma Junction is in a completely different part of Tacoma Park and is not within this plan area. And I'll just add that Maple Avenue is owned by the City of Tacoma Park. Maple Avenue is owned by the City of Tacoma Park. You're saying Maple Avenue is maintained, the actual Sorry. street yes. is maintained the street. by the City of Tacoma Park. Thank you yes. for clarifying. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Okay, we'll be back in a minute for our last item, which is item eight, a ZTA, an SRA, and a bill.
And it's time to talk about item 8, ZTA 2210, SRA 2201, and Bill 2422, which are all about streets and roads. And I think uh, Jason Sartori wants to say something to kick it off. And we're getting it. Yes. Uh, thank you. For the record, Jason Sartori, uh, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy. And greetings from beautiful Lake George, New York. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you in person today. I'm here on leave for my sister-in-law's wedding. But I did want to join virtually to quickly introduce this item. What you have before you now is a package of bills that will codify the complete streets design guide. Now, as you know, the planning board adopted the guide in February 2021, and the planning department and MCDOT have been using the guide uh, in our review of development applications and in the preparation of master plans ever since. In addition to creating context-sensitive design guidelines and standards, the guide also established new street and area type classifications that create that context. And the three bills before you today will formally document uh, these new classifications and translations into uh, from the old classifications into chapters 49, 50, and 59 of county code. This is not the first time you've seen the ZTA or the SRA. Uh, they were both introduced by the council at the board's request. I think we brought them through uh, the board in March of this year. Uh, but this will be the first time that you've had the opportunity to provide your feedback on the edits to Chapter 49, uh, the road code. So one thing I think that will be obvious today is the collaborative nature of this effort. We've talked a great deal in the past about how we coordinated uh, this work hand-in-hand -hand with MCDOT and also DPS. Uh, and I've been really impressed with how well our teams have worked together. Uh, and I'm really grateful for the dedication that uh, Steve Aldrich as our project manager and Dave Onsbacher, who led the project before him, uh, have really demonstrated hand-in-hand -hand again with uh, the leadership of Andrew Bossi at MCDOT. Uh, now, collaboration does not necessarily mean that there is always complete agreement, so I think you'll also see some examples today of disagreement over some finer details, and that's okay. We can work through those and share our different thoughts with you and with the council and uh, continue to, to move forward. But I think you'll also see another uh, kind of unique feature of this today is the collaboration internally here at the planning department, as you have two people presented to you who have presented to you fairly frequently. Uh, first, Ben Berbert, who you know is our zoning guru, uh, and then also Steve, who uh, leads up, uh, led up this project. So I'm gonna hand it off to Ben and, uh, and let, let him uh, then introduce the, the topics and then have him uh, hand it off to Steve. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Jason, for that introduction. Uh, more dedication than me because he still signs on when he's on leave. Uh, no, just kidding. So uh, I am Ben Berbert with the Countywide Planning Policy Division. Um, and before you today is our uh, overview and analysis and recommendations for Bill 2422. CTA 2210 and SRA 2201. Um, we're going to take it a little bit out of order of what's in the staff report and kind of knock out what I think are the easier two conversations first, which is the uh, SRA and the ZTA, um, in large part because you have seen them before. We do have some minor tweaks we want to make to them, but I don't think anything too substantial. And then I will transition the conversation over to Steve Aldrich and our friends with DOT to talk about Chapter 49's changes. Next slide, please. Um, so just as a, a basic background, staff is here supporting the ZTA, SRA, and Bill. Um, again, the SRA and ZTA were kind of referencing as minor corrections, um, kind of phrasing it as modifications to Bill 2422. But as Jason said, these still are 
pretty minor and technical in nature, but I think we are going to spend a little more time talking about those corrections today. Next slide. Um, so again, some of this background is a little redundant. Um, you know, we've been working with DOT for quite a while on this complete streets design guide, and we are kind of finally nearing the end of this process. Um, as Jason said, this will identify street, new street types as well as new area types. Um, this was first sort of approved as a design guide in 2021 by the planning board. Um, we're basically now here before you with the technical changes that need to happen to the three chapters of county code that will actually implement this design guide. Um, for the sake of not wanting to keep repeating information, I'll go ahead and skip to the next slide. Um, so Bill 2422 was introduced by the council president on July 26, 2022, technically on behalf of the county executive, but really on behalf of MCDOT. Uh, on that same date, the ZTA and SRA were introduced by the council president by request of the planning board. Um, and as Jason said, back on March 31st of 2022 is when we had the hearing here to actually transmit the requested ZTA and SRA to the council. Uh, the ZTA um, is probably the most technical update of all three of these documents. We are really going through the zoning ordinance to find every reference to existing road typologies as they are found in the current version of Chapter 49, and we're trying to replace them with the new typologies that were in the Complete Streets Design Guide and that are going to be now the new road typologies in the new version of Chapter 49. Um, the changes are throughout the code, although most of them really fall within the development standards section, which is Division Three, where it talks about the way the different uses kind of interact with each other in the code. Um, when look, thinking about the SRA, uh, there's a little more technical part of this. There are some technical aspects to road engineering and design standards that are kind of buried in the technical review subsection of uh, chapter 50, specifically section 4.3.E, um, which is the road section. And there you'll find information on intersection spacing, including new discussions that we're having about protected intersections, um, as well as some other standards about cul-de-sacs and um, some turning radii and centerline radii of roads. Next slide. Um, so I'm going to now continue in and, and discuss first uh, so the SRA and the ZTA. Um, again, the SRA is making modifications to Chapter 50 um, to make sure that we're consistent with the new Complete Streets Design Guide typologies as well as a few technical updates um, to some of those tables and standards. Go to the next slide. Um, there's a couple of minor modifications we want to make to the SRA from how you first saw it back in March of this year. Um, one of the first, and as you can kind of see in the red line here, we've realized through some correspondence we received, it wasn't entirely clear um, what protected intersections maybe are. They aren't really clearly defined in Chapter 50 or 59 currently. Um, we actually felt the best place to define that was through Chapter 49 of the county code. And so we are just kind of amending the section we've added discussing the uh, placement and inclusion of these protected intersections to say that the definition would be found in Chapter 49. I would say if for some reason that does not get added to Chapter 49, we do think um, we would want to amend this section to then reflect what protected intersections are because we do think it is important um, to define them somewhere. 
The other change that we're recommending to the SRA is, is very minor. Um, in the subsection talking about when private roads are allowed, the draft SRA had an and um, for connecting the A and B about the classification of the road and the length of the cul-de-sac, and we sort of realize that really wants to be an or and not an and, um, and so that's reflected on the screen here. Moving on to the ZTA, again, this is a very technical update, really just replacing road typology names from one to the other. Um, so go ahead to the next slide. Uh, the main changes we want to make here are actually in the defined terms section of the code. Um, when we first defined sort of road, we kind of just looked at the different road types that were defined under the current section of chapter 59 and tried to make the translation into a new definition. We've realized it didn't really make sense because it left out certain road typologies that probably just if we're going to include some, why not include them all? It made no sense not to include them all. And so this is just an updated definition that actually reflects all of the new road typologies um, under the definition of road. The other thing we're proposing here is actually to create a definition for street. It seems a little silly, but the word street's used a lot in the zoning ordinance and it's never defined. And so it just makes sense. We have this for other terms that are used a lot that kind of mean the same thing as something else where we'll just reference where else to find the definition. And so just for clarity, and again, this was something that was brought to our attention by other people that helped us review this once it was introduced, um, we just wanted to define street as the definition of road so that there's no future confusion. Um, the other thing that we just want to kind of make note of, and I do know that our friends with the council staff are making note of this as well, there have been a few ZTAs that have been adopted in the last few months that have relied in part on road typology as setting part of the use parameter. Uh, two ZTAs that come to mind include uh, 2202, the density and height for biohealth, as well as 2206, the exemptions for historic resources. Both of these uh, were adopted relying on arterial or higher type roadways as being a defining part of where the use can be. And we just want to make sure that since that's now been changed since March of 2022, that those sections also have the proper typology switched over. Um, there may be others that are not coming to mind, and so rather than showing a, a technical update to each of those, we just want to flag to the council to make sure that no recent ZTAs have inadvertently added more language than what we anticipated. Um, we did receive a racial equity and social justice statement um, for ZTA 2210, and it in part referenced a RESJ statement that it also did for Bill 2422. Um, the summary for both is that there's little to no expected RESJ impact for the county. The ZTA itself is very highly technical. Um, the RESJ for the ZTA did reference a discussion for the RESJ done for Bill 2422 um, that basically said that the impacts are sort of indeterminate um, and, and based that statement on not being able to determine when or how or why roads may get upgraded to follow the new standards if they, any of them, you know, are actually ever upgraded. I think a lot of the anticipation we have is just sort of going forward as major road projects are done or redevelopments are done, these new standards will be applied. Um, I think the, the OLO was sort of taking the view of if there's ever any proactive decision to upgrade roads until we have an idea of which ones they are, how they're chosen and how they're funded, we can't 
they can't make any determination on whether it's going to be equitable or not in that process. And so that's sort of the reason for their vague statement. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve to discuss uh, our analysis of Bill 2422. Great. Uh, for the record, Steve Aldridge from Countywide Planning and Policy. Um, and joining us today from Montgomery County DOT is um, Tim Couples, who is the Acting Direct Deputy Director for Transportation Policy, um, and Andrew Bossy, um, Transportation Engineer, tra Transportation Planner, and Jack of All Trades. Um, and so they're going to be here, and, and I believe they're, they're certainly willing to speak um, to some of the comments that we, um, we have addressed in our staff report. So as introduced, um, the, the bill, which was, which was developed by, um, by Montgomery County DOT, um, and actually um, DOT staff was um, actually, uh, you know, they shared some of this stuff with, with planning staff as, they, as it was under development. Um, so it was, uh, as Jason said, um, a very collaborative process. Um, so I, there weren't many surprises uh, on, on this bill. Um, so, so in addition to uh, what's in this bill 2422, um, there's the intention that DOT will be submitting new executive regulations for Chapter 49 Comcor, um, which will occur so at some point after um, the approval of Bill 2422. How soon? Not quite sure, but uh, that, that certainly is the intention to to add some of the some of the more technical details from the Complete Streets Design Guideline, things like minimum widths and default widths, um, to put that into code. So um, the guideline has some 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 backing from the county code. Um, the bill um, provides quite quite a number of changes in, in different sections of Chapter 49, including the standards and specifications section, um, which is a great change to really incorporate not just AASHTO uh, as, as additional guidelines, but NACTO standards as well. Um, so that's, that's a great addition. Um, section 4922 um, revises some pedestrian sidewalk, bicycles, and wheelchair information to have new terminology, um, including the term side path, which is something that for master plans we were now using in the planning department, and this would make it, I guess, more standard within our county code in general. Um, in addition, they also provided a, um, a fee and lieu option for the construction of bicycles and sidewalks under certain conditions. Um, and I will say that part of this bill, um, the major intent of this bill was to make it conform to complete streets, but uh, because that's an opportunity to revise the county code. Um, there are other elements that um, the Department of Transportation has included um, to, you know, to basically streamline their process and, and to make things more clear. I'm sorry. Um, was that is that like consistent with the uh, policy that was passed by the Planning Board recently, with regard to fee and lieu payments for frontage? Well, we're we're gonna have to go through that. Okay. Yeah. Um, the traffic calming section 4930 um, has essentially been updated to, um, to conform to the new street types. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that is, um, and I think there's been, there's a lot more flexibility in the complete streets design guide guidance um, on whether certain streets can have traffic calming. And so this is the first step in, in getting us there. Uh, in addition, uh, 
section 40, 4931 has revived road classifications. This is really the, 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 you know, the classifications that are in the complete streets guide that they will replace the, the ones that are currently in the master plan of highways in the current road code. Um, and there are a bunch of different subsections, including, you know, tra translations um, and, um, and some other things in there. Um, you know, planning staff, we see this as a necessary interim step until we can actually um, do a technical update to the master plan of highways. Um, and this gives us, a, you know, for an interim period of way, a way to move towards the new system. Um, we think we can get at least 95% there with these interim translations. Uh, fifth, uh, revised de design standards for roads in section 4932, um, including some elements, uh, including minimum rights, minimum rights away for some of the proposed street types, revised curb radius guidelines consistent with guidance in the, in the CSDG, um, and maximum target speeds um, for all street types. Um, and the remaining changes are, you know, as I mentioned, um, the... Um, update references to street types, you know, as well as modifications, as I said, deemed necessary by MCDOT and uh, DPS as well. So um, in terms of the classification, I just sort of want to talk through, uh, we've identified a three-phase approach for the full translation of, to the, of the Master Plan of Highways. The first one is the approval of this bill um, with the, the recommended changes that we have in our staff report to, to establish the interim street classifications. Um, we then are planning as part of the pedestrian master plan to identify um, new or modified area types um, you know, uh, that, that, will, that are introduced in this Bill 2422. And then finally, um, when we can add it to the, uh, to the department's work program, we would conduct a technical update to the master plan of highways and transitways um, to fully adopt the street designations and, and to really look very carefully at you know some of the the more nuanced areas because this translation isn't going to fit every condition they're going to be they're going to be streets um, that have specific you know adjacency, adjacency issues and traffic issues that really needs to be studied at a master planning process um, and so that would be um, you know the intent would be to get us from the 95 percent to com complete um, translation so uh, what we've identified in the staff report are a total of 10 what we called major issues and about 10 minor issues. And I'm going to focus primarily on the major issues, and I will have the minor issues up at the end on the screen, um, which we certainly can go through if you, um, you folks have questions. Um, so issue one was to identify the area types. Um, and I think this one really just, you know, the, the first part of this is, is, is that the... Um, the area types um, sort of need the same level of treatment as the street types. And so adding the language shown in red um, in this section sort of gives it, sort of gives that, um, that's sort of the full weight. Um, the second bullet was to designate three additional downtown areas um, based on the visions identified in, in um, some of the more recent master plans, including the White Oak Science Gateway, Great Seneca Science Corridor Master Plan and the, the 2017 Rock Spring Sector Plan. Um, so those um, those areas would become um, downtowns, um, and I think that the 
typically, um, you know, in the bill, the, the, the downtowns are specified. And if the, uh, an urban area, the translation basically is an urban area that is not a downtown becomes a town center. And after coordinating internally and certain talking with the master plan supervisors and, and particularly, um, you know, in, in the mid-county area where these, these, these master plans are, it was really seen that the master plan vision in all three of those plans were that these areas were to become downtown areas. I will show um, examples of this. So um, the FDA um, area, including Viva, Viva, Viva White Oak, um, to the right, um, you can see the LSC area, which would, the, the downtown areas would include all except, I believe, LSC South. So not, not the green area, but the, the areas above it. And then finally, the Rock Spring master plan boundary, that would become a downtown as well. Sorry to interrupt, I just want to ask, would you like DOT's comment as we go along or wait till the end and come back through these? What's the question? Would you, uh, we have a number of comments on these issues. Would you like to hear it as we go along or wait till the end? We might as well hear it as we go along. All right. Uh, so if you could back up one slide, please, yep. Steve. Or, okay, two more. There. <laughs> the first bullet, that's fine. The second bullet, just want to ask. Uh, the three uh, areas proposing to be added out at, uh, in White Oak, White, White Oak, Great Seneca, and Rock Spring. I just want to ask, are they really downtowns or are they more like town centers? Um, I think that our interpretation of the plan implies it's more of a town center sort of shape and where I think Great Seneca might be headed is in a similar direction. The big difference is really in the active zone and it's the width of the sidewalks, the width of the frontage zone, which sounds great to have bigger sidewalks, but of course there's a cost associated with that um, as well as the pervious, impervious pavement impacts and um, uh, right-of-way needs. So, if we go with downtown, you're going to be adding about, I think it's about 10 or 15 feet-ish. I mean, there's some flexibility, of course, in that um, to what the minimum rights of way might need and what the impervious pavements would be. I'm not sure I understand your point here. Are you saying that we should be more conservative in, in defining where the uh, limits of the urban street types are? or? It's really just, are these downtowns or are they town centers? The bullet here proposes to put them under downtowns. It's not a make or break for us, but we suggest it be town centers. I think some of that might have to do with what the expectation is for pedestrian, um, how much pedestrian activity there will be, because the downtown area, clearly you want wider sidewalks, um, particularly CVDs, things where people are gonna be walking a lot. So I think it depends on that question. Is, is, are we anticipating in those three areas a significant amount of pedestrian activity um, on a regular basis? Because if that's, if yeah, that's I, what it, how we're dictating it. So I guess that, that's the question that I, I mean, have. It seems like if we're just talking about those three areas, that's a little bit different than if the part in the previous paragraph that just says prospectively, I guess and maybe some of this is retrospective in the way the master plans talk about these uh, areas, um, you'd have an opportunity to make a decision based on a specific place, right? But as far as those three, I thought we were trying to make these as walkable and you know, having urban qualities of uh, 
you know, street design as we can. And um, I just, I, I guess, and I also kind of question the premise that it means there's more imperviousness because, you know, like take Rock Spring, you got a lot of overbuilt roads there right now. You could, I think you can get a lot of the, these road codish elements in the right of way without adding more pavement. In fact, you might have a net reduction in pavement. So I just think that the, I'm not, not trying to be dismissive, but I'm not sure I'm persuaded that you're, that the premise of your point is. Basically, if you take the correct. same street, um, so if you, you know, reconstruct whatever streets out there today under a downtown versus a town center, let's say, sure, maybe they're both eight lanes today and they go down to four or six. Uh, but the big difference between downtown and town center is downtown's gonna have, I think it's 10 to 15 foot sidewalks or side paths, whereas town center eight to 10 feet. So that's an extra like five-ish feet of pavement comparing equally between these two different types. Right. I'm not saying bad to have wider sidewalks, but it's just that extra impacts of imperviousness if you don't have the pedestrians who really need that extra pavement. I think downtowns also have frontage zones. And the frontage zone as well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, honestly, I, I sort of think you should err on the side of accommodating more because in the real world, you probably won't get everything that's specified, but you're not gonna get more that's specified in the standard. I mean. In my experience, that's the way the world works, right? There's 10-foot standard for multi-use paths, and often we see plans that are that are proposed for approval that are eight feet. And you ask why, and you say, "Well, we wanted to reduce imperviousness." Well, if you don't if you don't establish a more aggressive standard, you'll never get the standard at all. You'll get less. So I, my my position is we should um, keep it. Okay, and I did want to note that. Um, item, I guess, I, the identification of the Rock Spring master plan boundary was incorrectly, um, there was some misspelling there, so we're going to make some corrections to that um, when we transmit it. Okay. If anybody disagrees with me, feel free to interrupt, I'm just, I, but I think we should try to work through this as quickly as we can. Yeah, uh, Jerry, so she, the point in, in these new areas that are being developed, uh, you know, you're looking at more transit, you're carpooling, biking, et cetera. So there might be an element to ensure that you have adequate, uh, you, more people perhaps are walking than normally. Uh, again, if you're pushing biking, transit, carpooling, et cetera. So that would be one consideration. As areas become semi-downtown, yes, they're not totally downtown, but you are, if you're going to have... Uh, facilities, you know, restaurants, other things there, uh, people, you know, maybe walking between where they're working and uh, trying to get to a store or restaurant or something, hotel even that might be in the area. Yeah, sure. So to sure. me, that's a consideration. Yeah, right. I sure wish somebody had assumed more pedestrian traffic in Wheaton because the sidewalks are grossly inadequate now. And I'm sure when the streets were designed, they probably seemed ample. What's next? Okay, next one, the third, the third bullet would be to add industrial as the fifth area type. Um, there are only four now, um, and it, there, there are industrial streets, and so, you know, just so that we have it established within Chapter 49, um, you know, as we go forward, um, we felt it was appropriate to have an, an industrial area type. Um, so we're proposing some language changes, and we essentially are defining industrial areas as areas where employment and industrial uses are the predominant activities. And so, I 
We agree adding in a definition. Uh, we might wordsmith it a little bit to read, to quote, an industrial area is an area with predominantly industrial zoning, end quote. It's simple. Uh, it avoids some of the vagueness in the phrasing that's right there, uh, that is in the, the staff packet. Um, and it ties it to phrasing that's used elsewhere, referencing chapter 59's zoning. I wonder if we could add some clarification that, you know, in, in industrial districts, it seems to me that there is an increasingly diverse range of land uses. Like if you talk about like Brookville Road, for example, in Littonsville, you'll see restaurants or you'll see, you know, a bakery that has a wholesale operation, but they also sell, you know, at the front, they sell retail and, and in the future, hopefully there will be some residential. So perhaps just some acknowledgement that particularly in industrial areas, um, the, you know, design of, uh, you know, streets and sidewalks and whatnot should uh, reflect that nuance that, that it's probably. I think the guides kind of captured that as well, yeah. yeah. But that's the, the main concern actually that's behind what we are proposing is tying it to the zoning because the uses and employment, is, that can vary a lot of what that is. Is that retail spot industrial use or not? But if it's on the zoning, it's clear. Yeah. And I would actually say planning staff concurs. We, we're agreeable to that change. Great. Moving right along. Legacy um, issue two was to remove legacy area types from the county code, um, specifically the definitions of rural area, um, and and you know defining it based on old areas and and then urban areas as well. Um, and we had a bunch of different ones to really try to um, you know strip it out of the code as much as possible. And I know that you folks have comments on that. Yeah, I think you know. One of the things that we need to do is retain the federal classification system as well. It's important to us when we're going for grants and um, other sorts of federal and state aid. We still need to be able to fill out these forms with the classification. And that's really what drove us to keep the rural and, and um, uh, the definitions as they were as far as rural and urban. It's about being consistent with the federal classification system. I think for our purposes, day in and day out, we're going to use the Complete Streets Design Guide and the street typology, and we just need to have this overlay system for the federal stuff. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that's unobjectionable. But if somebody objects, please let me know. I'm, as okay. I say, I'm, I'm... All right, issue three. Oh, yes, we'll get to Leslie. Uh, don't worry. We haven't forgotten you. Issue three is interim translations for arterials, minor arterials, and business district streets. Um, one of the things that we found when um, we were reviewing Bill 2422 is we actually um, we created an ArcGIS map where we conducted the translations and looked at how complete is it. And when we looked at these three street types, and especially I would say for business district streets, we found that there was a lot of disconnect because there are many places where we've done master plans where we, we, um, we've designated a business district street, um, generally in an urban area, but sometimes we designate it spilling outside that urban area. And with the translation, um, the street type that would result is just not appropriate. Um, so we provided a lot of detail looking very carefully at what, what are those streets that d don't seem to make sense from the, the translation as written um, and we really discovered that looking more at the number of lanes and whether the road is 
divided or undivided, um, made a difference. And so we provided a, you know, a lot of different changes, 11, 10, and 11 for each of these three street types. And admittedly, some of these translations actually don't happen, but we put them in for completeness. But some of them are, are pretty significant. And, and on the business district side, I will mention um, Howard Avenue in Kensington is one example. It, it's, it's classified as a business district street all the way out to Knowles. Um, actually, in the future, this, that might become an industrial street. But um, right now, it's a business district street. And it would become, a, I believe, a boulevard um, with the translation. Um, and with, with our revised changes, it would become an area connector, which we feel is more appropriate. Um, so it, we, you know, it's it's like a page and a half of edits f from us, but we we think that it really adds some completeness to make sure that um, we're as close to 100% as we possibly can with these translations, okay. um, and that we avoid having to, you know, haggle it out um, and look try to deviate from these generic translations. Andrew, Tim. Yep. Yep, yep, so yep, yep, I yep. agree with the issues that we're trying to address. Um, there is a clause that's in the same section, we'll actually get to in a few slides, that allows an override where those default conversions don't make sense. Uh, the concern with what's been included in the staff packet here is basically it's overcomplicating. And by doing the undivided and divided breakdown, it opens up the door to other questions about what that means. Is it divided or undivided today or in the master plans? Or what constitutes a divided road? Is it geometric median? Is it uh, flex post? Is it just a striped out lane in the middle? Um, and this is a point where it's just really a simplification is better, and we have another option to try and override where we don't think that it makes sense. And I guess the counterpoint is that master plans actually designate roads as divided, and if they're not divided, they're undivided. So um, that's, that's what we'd fall back for. I mean, on a road that's for, classified, the nomenclature is 4D, that's a four-lane divided road. Um, so it's pretty clear in the master plan whether that's exactly what's in the plan, that's what's designated as the master plan. I think I'm finding myself agreeing with Commissioner Bossi on this one. Anybody else? I mean, it just seems like there are some, some complexities in the real world, not just what the master plan says, but what it is today and what that means. If I could just real quickly, uh, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning, just kind of clarify here too that anything that is not captured in these interim translations would need to be uh, captured in our ultimate translation, which would occur in a technical update to the Master Plan of Highways and Transitways, which we don't currently have on our work program. It's something that we're hoping that we can add to our work program for FY24. Um, and so at that point, though, there would be a more detailed, you know, street by street adjustment to all of the classifications. And so this is just was an attempt by planning staff to try to preempt those so that the interim translations could be more accurate to what we will ultimately be recommending most likely through the master plan of highways and transitways update. Well, Sounds like a phased approach yeah, in a sense. Well, I was just, just suggest if you wanted to tweak it and be specific about, you know, to address some of the points DOT is making, I think that's fine. But I think they're just making a good point that it's a little unclear. Are we talking about what's there today, what will be there, assuming some ultimate condition or, or what? And, you know, what exactly does it mean to say it's divided? Um, but if there's some other approach, I think 
I don't know that any of us. Well, yeah. One uh, Jerry, Sushi, uh, just, uh, you know, haven't been in this general area. I know things have changed, but we, we always met uh, progress meetings on projects, road projects. We always met monthly with park and planning. There was always someone in our progress meeting, but there are going to be exceptions, a unique place. Uh, so I think it's collaboration. If it doesn't quite meet the standard that has been set, it's collaboration between MCDOT, uh, the planning staff, and, and in some cases, obviously, State Highway to come up with a, a suitable solution, which then may generate some need to change the standard. But on occasion, there may be three or four exceptions in the county. And I think that's a. Jerry, I think you muted yourself. Okay, kind of lost my comment, but not if you heard it. It's it's sometimes it you can't have cover everything. You need collaboration between MCD or T and the planning staff. Might be some u unique cases from time to time. Okay, I think we can move along. Issue four is interim translations for primary residential streets in the country area, and we think this was just. Uh, a uh, an error just you know because it, it it's inconsistent with what's in the complete streets design guide uh, right now it's listed as primary residential streets in a country area are classified as country connectors um, and yet when you if you if you read the guide um, the intention was that they be country roads so we're, we're just recommending that change okay fine. no comments uh, issue five transitions between street types on continuous roads um, and this was, uh, I think, a really good idea when we started talking about it. This is something that we do on master plans all the time, um, certainly um, within planning staff and, and sort of in agreement between us and DOT and Glen Orland and county staff. Um, but what we realized when we read it, read it and started to try to apply it is that, you know, this is really a master plan uh, effort, making this decision, and that... Um, you know, in, by and large, the boundary, um, the boundaries that we're going to create, um, they're very finite. Um, you know, you, you get into a town center or downtown, it, it, it transitions pretty quickly. Um, there may be a few places where we need to transition it through an intersection, which may be inside or outside. Um, but, you know, I, I think those kind of decisions in terms of cross-sections, that, that happens all the time. Um, we think this is an overly complicated uh, and in some cases, we'll add a transition to a uh, road section that the master plan had a transition master planned in. And so it'll be a, an additional transition. So we think it's kind of redundant and not necessary. So we're recommending that this section just not deleted and not be included. I felt really smart writing this, but I agree. It can, <laughs> it can go. Nods all around. Uh, issue six, the authority to modify interim street type designations. Uh, here we have a pretty um, a, a pretty huge difference of opinion. Uh, we're, we're recommending that that planning board be uh, the appropriate authority in consultation with DOT for determining when to deviate from interim street types. The bill is currently written uh, has DOT as the appropriate authority to do that. Um, so so we're trying to shift the focus, but also do it in consultation with DOT. And Andrew, Tim? Yes. So 
we, we don't recommend that this be included toward council. Um, under the authority already established under 4931A, that's the doing master plans, functional plans, sector plans, uh, the planning board already has that authority to be able to override and create those classifications. This is something where, uh, this is trying to, to, for us as we're doing a design project or something to interpret the context and apply the appropriate design standards where the default conversions don't make sense. Uh, it's intended really just for those design purposes um, where projects might be proceeding in an area where the master plan hasn't been updated to reflect complete streets. Um, I would suggest one, one edit though to what we have in the text currently before council is just where it says or transition length that can come out because the previous slide kicked out transitions. But um, uh, again, otherwise, it's, this is trying to be a stopgap until you do come through with some sort of more formal master plan, sector plan, functional plan amendment to establish the classification. And, and I guess my oh. counterpoint to that would be that if the board wants to consider um, the, the, the item as, as listed, I would say a compromise would be to add after the Department of Transportation, just say in consultation with the planning board. Well, I don't mean we to get all turfy here, but I think we do have, this is our wheelhouse. I mean, it's just is. We're the, we're the transportation planners, you're the transportation implementers, we're the sort of policy-making body. We are the keeper of the master plan of highways, et cetera. So I just think we, and plus, as you point out, there's other statutory authority for it that gives it to us. So I don't, I think it kind of creates some confusion if you say in one place it's, DOT is effectively the lead, and the other places said it's the planning board. But having said that, I'm confident that we will all hold hands and it'll be unicorns and rainbows because it always is. Well, at least it is now. It wasn't always, but you know, I just think we're going to be fine. We can all get along. Yeah, Jerry Sushi, when I was there, I viewed we were trying to implement what was planned, and from that standpoint, uh, we would try to, try to accommodate as much as possible. In some cases, we had quick take that State Highway and WSSC did not have. So sometimes we would actually get a little bit of extra right away in our project and the cost of our project to then make that right away available to State Highway or uh, WSSC. In some cases, we would even get a developer. We would use quick take to get a right away between intersections. So a developer came in to do his project where we say, oh, by the way, see if you can pave the sidewalk, we've got the right of way. And uh, we would, you know, in getting the right of way, if a wall of bush was needed for the property owner, um, George Mossberger was my right of way guy. I'd say, you know, let's work with the property owner to kind of do a complete street major project coming in, access to both intersections, uh, you know, east, west, or south of the, north or south of the project. So, uh, you know, I, I, that's my, was my view, try to implement what was planned. Obviously, there should be a give and take. And sometimes you do modify the plan based on comments from MCDOT. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it should be, uh, we should keep the planning part of it with planning. Okay, moving right along. Issue seven, minimum rights away. Um, and this this was added, um, I mean, there are probably a bunch of reasons that maybe DOT can talk to, but I know that um, there are some streets that are not master planned that the, the planning board may require a developer to construct. And for those type of streets, uh, it's useful to have minimum rights away. Uh, currently for our um, 
our current design streets, those are specified in the um, DOT's design standards, um, which DOT, I believe, may be updating once we're through this process. Um, but this specifically added some specific minimums for um, those type of streets, like downtown streets and town center streets, et cetera. Um, and the definition, uh, you know, we had a little bit of um, disagreement on the definition, and part of it was because two words were left out, um, which we can talk about. Uh, but we wanted to we wanted to make it clear that you know when we do master plans we always have to specify, you know that the rights so the master plan rights of ways are minimum and what's included and what's not, um, and you know regardless of what's in chapter forty nine, we're always going to do that in each master plan. We're not always consistent with what we say, um, and we need to get better at that, um, you know. But things like transit stations and intersection widening. Um, those aren't in the minimum rights away. Um, and so, um, anyway, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, first, the two missing words are the words do not, uh, as we're saying what is in a minimum rights of way and that whole list of things in there. Uh, that whole list are things that are not in the minimum rights of way. Very important missing words. Uh, so that has to get corrected one way or another. Um, speaking to the edits so on the screen here, uh, obviously I'm speaking because we like our phrasing better. Um, the definition that we have for Chapter 49 tries to park it. It's a definition for Chapter 49, and there's other parts within this minimum rights of way section that are based on that. Now, our concern with the, the staff edits here is that it's kind of outsourcing that definition to other documents by saying that that's where those documents will define what's in the minimum rights of way. They can clarify that, but master plans have kind of been a little bit over the place with how they define minimum rights of way and what is and isn't in there. This would be your starting default definition that works for the code, and master plans can also use it. I think they're trying to say the same thing. It's just a matter of our, our, our text keeps it in the code, and the draft text before you tries to shift it into master plans. And I think it, because it says such as, it's a, these are lists of examples of things that could be included, and I think that each of these are very important and it's a it's it's going to be relevant to the particular project, and I think that um, it it actually helps to have those examples in there so that there's no uh, concern about what what we could add in there. So I I, I like the the proposed change. The proposed but change. I think there needs to be some um, uh, recognition of the fact that. Uh, as Mr. Bossy says, um, sometimes the master plans are kind of all over the map and are, you know, they vary a lot in terms of their specificity. And, you know, this language seems to imply that the most recent plan governs. I think probably only if the plan is more recent than this code, because in cases where the plan is 30 years old, and doesn't include some of these road code, you know, new school road codish concepts. The point of this code is to kind of drag the plans right away recommendations into the 21st century, right? So I I uh, agree with you on the you know what you said about such as, but let the ref record uh, reflect he's pointing to me. To Carol, <laughs> that's right. But I think the earlier part of this sentence is kind of the problem that doesn't reflect uh, Andrew Bossi's <laughs> comment, which is important that it's we got to reconcile the fact that 
you've got all these documents that were written over a period of time. Some of them won't be updated because there's nothing going on for land use reasons, but we need to have the code apply to effectively revise some of those standards, right? Yeah, I, I have a suggestion for the do not, and it, it occurs basically between end and account for parking. Um, and so their rewrite for that section would be end do not account for parking. Uh, I think we would prefer if, if it said and do not generally account for parking. Uh, okay, whatever. But I'm, I think we're all fine with that. But I'm just saying let's change it so to make it clear what trumps what. The, the plans with a capital P all their flavors are uh, really come first if they postdate the code. But the code also has to be able to update outdated right-of-way recommendations in the plans. Now, if you're talking about which plan among plans is takes precedence, it should be the most recent one. So if you could maybe tweak that to reflect that idea. Great. What's next? Issue eight, curb radius. Um, so there, there was a lot of uh, discussion in the complete st streets design guidelines about minimum curb radii, um, and so the bill has included most of that, but there were some discrepancies. So uh, planning staff um, added some suggested revisions um, that would make the, the guide and the bill uh, much more consistent. Andrew. Yeah, I agree with one small edit. I do think what you've drafted is more sensical than what I first wrote. Um, the, the small edit I'd have would be in line 1027. It's what would be the new number three, where it says the default 25-foot corner radius is required where at least one street is an industrial street. Don't really know what a default required and how those two words uh, work together. It's just deleting default and changing required to acceptable. So it reads. A 25-foot corner radius is acceptable where at least one street is an, is an industrial street. Yeah. Okay. Issue nine is modify target speeds. Um, and we identified a couple places where there were some inconsistencies. Uh, and the third one is basically um, we think the county's priorities have changed since we completed this document in 2021, and we're recommending a change in one of the street types. So the first one is to designate target speeds um, for boulevards as 35 miles per hour as there are no boulevards located in urban areas. And the bill um, provided a 35 except 25 if it's, if it's in an urban area. There are no boulevards in urban areas. The second uh, one was the I, chain. Oh, I'm sorry. Leslie, why don't you come up now? This seems like a... I have a question on yes. that, on the speeds. Because over the last couple of legislative sessions in Annapolis, we have changed we've gotten authority to change speeds on different roads i'm wondering if there's a way to make sure that it's the most that we don't have to change the code the county code every time we get the authority to do that uh to to change that the speed so is there a way to do it in a more to leave it open that if we get authority on a um you know, through state legislation that we can reduce it. So just to leave it a little bit more flexible so we don't have to come back on that. Is there, is there a way to do that or am I missing, am I missing something? I'm not sure. I think that might be a legal question. <laughs> and remember, this is tar target speed as opposed to posted speed limit. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, maybe that's, that's it. But I, I, I maybe having a catch-all in there that 
would allow us to reduce that speed if we get the legislative legislation to do it because I think we're always looking to reduce the speed limit in many of our you know more urban and uh, even some suburban areas these are target speeds so we can certainly go lower um, I think this is really our the maximum target speed that we're okay. outlining here and we actually did set some of these to be pretty ambitious we'll come to that very shortly, uh, with 20 miles per hour. Now, it's before the state legislation had even advanced, we were already looking to establish that on neighborhood streets. Uh, I want to say there was another type in there, and we'll, we'll come to another very shortly. Yeah. Second bullet, uh, second issue is, is town center boulevards in the bill. They, they have two speeds again. And again, town center boulevards are only in urban areas. Um, so the idea with that, with that one would be 25 instead of 30. And then the third one is that residential streets, you know, with 20 is plenty, the goal is to um, slow traffic down on neighborhood streets in general. Um, and we firmly believe that neighborhood connectors um, is one street classification that in the guide and in Bill 2422, it's 25 miles an hour and it should be 20. Um, one of the changes that we made while we were reviewing this is that originally um, neighborhood connectors included a broader category of streets. And what we're doing in the final guide is we, we um, um, and this sort of goes to the minor arterial versus primary residential street. Streets that are minor arterials are going to become area connectors, and streets that were primary residential streets are going to become neighborhood connectors. And it's not uniformly like that. Um, and so the idea is that streets that are now primary residential streets, they should be part of that 20 is plenty um, campaign and commitment. Um, so that's why we're recommending that change. And uh, Jerry, Sushi, I have a question. <laughs> I've raised it in the past, but the Clarksburg, uh, what was defined as the 355 bypass, uh, what is, how does that get set in this uh, environment? What speed? Again, it's a bypass for major trucks through a residential area. So that, that kind of came to my mind. Well, the bypass. So what do you do with the. The bypass, the I, be bypass. I believe it would be in the suburban area and it would be a boulevard and so the target speed would be 35. Okay, and I, I, my, my opposition was a comment was a little bit that it's a residential area. Uh, trucks are gonna try to bypass one light on 355 to get up to the industrial area north, uh, but that's something to consider. Okay. Thank you. I'll add from TOT's perspective, we agree certainly with the first edit for boulevards, town center boulevards. Uh, we agree, just want to flag that in the guide as approved, town center boulevards are 30 miles per hour. If they're all going to be 25, based on them being in urban areas, then we have to change the guide to revise that down to 25, What just adding to our list of uh, markups for that guide. And the 20 miles per hour in neighborhood connectors, we were going to propose the same thing. You just stole our thunder. So, yeah, we support that. Okay, sounds good. Okay, issue 10, sidewalk. How many, how many more is we going to go through? This is the last major issue, and then we have a bunch of minor issues, which I think we're, we can breeze through most of them. And, um, I know the DOT okay. has some Before comments on it. speed limits, uh, why don't we hear from Leslie Savills, because some of her uh, rural road stuff touches on speeds. Okay. Seems like as good a place as any to. I'm happy to do that. Thank you. Uh, my name is Leslie Seville. I'm a Silver Spring resident. I first want to compliment uh, staff at DOT and here at Planning for this, uh, for the very sensitive amendments. Um, I am supporting the recommendations 
uh, in the markup in the staff report, pages 4 to 19, getting to the target speeds. Um, the maximum target speed in the document for rustic and exceptional rustic roads is to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. However, the um, country road classification has a 20 to 35 mile an hour recommendation for it as a maximum target speed. I'm recommending that that be applied to the rustic and the exceptional rustic roads. Um, speeding is a serious consideration in the up county area. It's a real safety concern. And the rustic and exceptional rustic designations are a lower classification than the country classification. Um, so to assure that the rustic uh, and exceptional rustic roads can continue to meet their safety requirements, I think having the lower target speed is recommended. Uh, currently, the speeds are mostly posted between 25 and 35. Um, talking to the committee, we were able to come up with three examples where we think they might be 40 miles an hour. So uh, let's see, the uh, next request is um, in section 4980, there's a, uh, a word commission uh, instead of committee for the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee, uh, a simple technical correction. Um, then to reflect the actual uh, complete streets design guide, chapter seven needs to be added to this. That's the green streets chapter. There's no reflection in here at the moment. In discussing this with staff, I understand it could end up in a different section of code. But unless it's also reflected in chapter 49, we could end up with a situation where it's, we have a conflict between two sections of code. Uh, um, oh, I'm sorry, keep going. And, and the last one on that is, um, there's also a um, figure A3 street design features that requires street trees and landscaping and medians where present, which is also not reflected in this document. That needs to be integrated into it and um, the um, uh, DOT design standards also need to be updated to reflect what's in the Complete Streets Design Guide. On the zoning ordinance, uh, Ben very kindly uh, corrected um, the definition to include exceptional rustic in his list of um, uh, definitions for roads. And the speed limits in the green streets and trees need to be integrated there as it's um, added to Chapter 49. And that's all I have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, what do you guys think about all that? Yeah, one, one thing I might mention, the green streets, um, which was a, that's a very good comment. Um, some of the elements of green streets could actually be included in the Chapter 49 Comcore. Um, and maybe maybe you folks can address that a little bit. Um, if you could share your comments with us, so we'll certainly dive into it. Yeah. I'm just inclined to say that we sh those sound reasonable. We should kind of defer staff from planning and DOT to see what elements of uh, Ms. Savell's comments can be worked in. What's next? Next is 
Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you. Steve, I'm, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, this, I was going to say, issue 10 is not uh, a required element in the Complete Streets Design Guide. Um, you know, as DOT also included some changes in Chapter 49, which again is their, regu you know, their, their guiding reg regulation um, to provide some cleanup and clarity. Um, so this is, this is uh, you know, I think a major issue. Um, and we, we just have a, um, a couple of disagreements, um, which are identified above, um, with four different bullets. Um, you know, one identifying when a sidewalk exemption, uh, whether it's needed and, and who, who makes the determination. Um, clarification on what foreseeable future means. Um, authorizing the planning board to develop criteria for mitigation payments. Um, and, and then some, uh, some, uh, some clarification on section 49-40. And commis Commissioner Rubin, the fourth bullet that uh, Steve went over was addressing your comment from earlier about the policies that the planning board has established. So, so this essentially would codify those because um, I, I remember when we were looking at those uh, policy questions, there was, I think I raised whether or not we needed to make changes to the road code. So this would actually complete that. Right. And at that time, this was back in February or March, we indicated we would come back with edits to Chapter 49. Great. This doesn't codify that policy, but it it says that the what planning board can establish. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Explicit authority. Yes. Thank you. And I believe we have some uh, Jerry. Go ahead, Jerry. Jerry, since you comment, we had one case on, uh, as I recall, Seven Locks Road. Uh, the issue is an unplatted lot. Uh, the issue came up. Uh, there was a bike path across the street, uh, but the issue came up of uh, dedicating right away for uh, sidewalk and shoulder on Seven Locks Road. Uh, no MCDOT plans to widen that road, and this is, how does that affect unplatted properties, uh, perhaps in uh, more rural areas of the county, to, to make the dedica required dedication? Well, I, if there's no no if, plan or if I'm not an issue here, yeah, this uh, I think this just says that the, we can establish standards for that sort of thing. Like okay. like right. me and Lou. I mean, okay. this question, uh, the future is not foreseeable is an interesting epistemic, uh, you know, inquiry. Okay. Right? But, yeah. but, but I don't know. The nature of being and knowledge is uh, beyond the uh, <laughs> A grade. Uh, all right. So Does maybe, MCDOT right. have an opinion on this one, or they're just looking for, for planning to to sign off on what's been presented. Oh, they have opinions. Yeah. Here they go. <laughs> and this may be one where we, we, I mean, I think we've been able to achieve a good deal of consensus. This may be one where <laughs> it might be a little more difficult. Um, but um, w with regard to the, the first bullet, um, you know, I think if I understand um, the, the notion correctly is that this um, isn't, you know, the planning staff is, is, is recommending um, not including it because this is a part of the code that's focused on, you know, the capital improvements program as opposed to developer projects. And, and I don't know that I agree because I don't know that it says that in, in either the existing code or the proposed code. Our understanding um, of that, um, 
really was our interpretation of it, and we confirmed it in conversations with Glenn Orland. Um, well, I mean, he, he, I understand. You know, Glenn has a great deal of history and knowledge. I just look at, I read the text, and, and nowhere in that section does it say this applies to a project constructed by the county or this applies to a project constructed by a developer. Um, I mean, that is correct. Um, the last time we you know, made major changes to Chapter 49 back in 2013, there was a lot of discussion around 4929 and 4923. 4929 was intended to be for capital projects, 4933 for uh, regulatory projects. We did, as Steve said, we confirmed that with Glenn. And one of our minor comments is that we really need to state that in the code because it is not clear. That part we agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that the code is not clear, yes. Um, you know, with, with the, the, um, the whole foreseeable future, we struggled with that ourselves. We went around and around, and eventually we decided it was easier just to say foreseeable future. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think this is part of the, you know, development review process is that the staffs get together with Appen and they, you know, I don't think it's helpful to say it's got to be in the CIP or it's, got to be, you know, just to, to say, hey, is this something you guys are planning on building anytime soon? Yeah, we're, we're open to any kind of suggestion there. We, I, I know, think this is just one where there's, <laughs> it's uh, constructive ambiguity, personally. Um, okay, so now the next one, um, again, I have to, to um, th this is um, an existing authority underneath 4940 um, that is, uh, you know, established where, where the Department of Permitting Services has um, this, uh, this authority. And so um, we don't concur that it's appropriate to add it here under Chapter 49. And I think to try and understand why, why does the current code have it here, I think this is when, you know, all about, this is clearly about when a developer is coming in and they're getting through the design process and they're, they're, they're trying to comply with all these other environmental regulations like stormwater management to the maximum extent possible. And, and they're, you know, they're past the planning board part, but they're trying to pull their permit, and their DPS is it authorized to make a determination today to accept a fee in lieu, which then enables DOT to construct some improvements somewhere nearby, um, but not necessarily require the developer to construct it uh, when it becomes Yeah, unfeasible. but the point is there needs to be some clarity because I agree the code se now seems to suggest DPS can just waive it, and that's just not satisfactory because mm -hmm. you can't, DPS can't waive a planning board condition, yeah, period. Yeah. So I think we need to clarify that. Okay. No matter what the rest of the code says. They can waive it for themselves. They can say we're not going to require it, but if the planning board required it as a condition of approval, you just got to do it what, no matter what DPS thinks. Like anything else. Yeah. Understood. What's um, next? Is that the last one? Yeah, that yeah. is the last one. That is the last one. All right, certainly. And I, I think we have some um, DOT comments on the minor issues. And maybe Andrew and Tim, if you can, if you can just identify which ones those are. Uh, I'm just um, I think the first one just uh, was about the clarification. I mean, we've already touched on it about uh, whether what applies to capital projects or not. Um, 
I would say uh, 4933, for example, I, I think does apply to both. It's not necessarily for development projects. It requires DOT to put up a street sign at every intersection. So, I, you know, I think we just wanted to point that out. Um, I'll take that next couple. Um, I think the third bullet talks about adding the, the word complete to be a lowercase. Actually, there's two words I think got chopped off the conversion into bill form. It should read, uh, including the regulation adopting the complete streets design guide, where the two missing words there, and that would be a proper, proper noun. Um, the next bullet, uh, where it adds any sidewalk or any side path that is not master planned. I don't know if I consider this a minor edit. Um, this would reduce the exceptions that are being given to sidewalks and side paths, which itself sounds good, building out more sidewalks, side paths. But that means that we have more facilities being built out in more lower density or rural areas where they're unlikely to connect to anything for a long time, potentially <laughs> decades. Um, the fee in lieu, of course, that uh, well, if we build those, we have to maintain them. Um, there's also the uh, other impacts of you know, impervious pavement and so forth. But fee and lieu lets us take those resources and put them elsewhere where there is a more imminent need for uh, sidewalks and side paths. Um, so that's why with this in mind, we wouldn't recommend that the fourth bullet uh, be included because that master plan word expands the scope of that substantially. Uh, let's see, the next several bullets, all acceptable. I think, Tim, you got one in there. Yeah, we got one. It goes back again to this whole, um, uh, I think, the same issue we were talking about before with, uh, you know, DPS and, and, you know, what their authority is. Um, you know, I think, I think we've probably already touched on it. Then <laughs> <laughs> I'll take... That was the second to last bullet. I'll take the last bullet, which is the protected crossing. We agree adding a definition for protected crossing. We do have a wordsmithing. I've shared it with Steve. Uh, should I read it in, word, in full here? Okay. Yeah, why not? All right. So our, our, our definition would be protected crossing, specific traffic control devices that improve the safety and comfort of pedestrians and bicyclists crossing streets by reducing or eliminating conflicts, as well as increasing stopping and yielding for pedestrians and bicyclists using measures such as traffic signals, in parentheses, full signals but pedestrian signals, pedestrian hybrid, hawks, beacon, hawk beacons, always stop control or grade separated crossings. Basically the goal of what we're trying to do here is um, protect the crossing itself is only those devices specifically to cross pedestrians. Uh, that's with the signals and so forth there. Um, speed management techniques uh, and some of the other stuff I think included in the staff draft. Um, they support those, they're great, but they're not literally the definition for protected crossing. And I think we are okay, planning staff is okay with that change. Great. Yeah, uh, Jeremy, Sushi, I, I had a question on that that I've raised in the past. Uh, looking at some of the places where, uh, one of the cases is Montrose, the old Montrose Road. Uh, there are signs that say, you know, stop for pedestrians at the crosswalk versus obviously you hopefully stop for people that are in the crosswalk. Uh, obviously where there's a signal for a crosswalk that certainly tries to make traffic stop. Uh, but any review or any changes based on this document uh, where there are unprotected crosswalks defined? I think some of this came up in some of the areas of the county and uh, uh, you know, we are moving to more walking, biking, and safety, so to speak. And so it, and maybe it's a state law that applies more so than local consideration. 
Yeah, so what's, what, it's not quite what was before us today, but in general, Complete Streets tries to lay out a vision for more protected crossings and getting away from those you know, unprotected crossings, whether they're just maybe markings or the ones that don't even have markings. Um, what exactly that constitutes, like um, obviously a protected crossing definition I just read out leaves a lot of room of what kind of signalization you have or um, you know, what other sort of indirect features are included. That's something I think we're working to define internally by different um, contexts, whether it's uh, the speed of vehicles, um, I think it's the, the biggest one, uh, uh, size of the roadway, um, and the, what exactly we define internally as protected, uh, protected crossing will probably uh, be a little bit more nuanced by a lot of different factors. And I will mention, uh, when, okay. I, when I presented the access management study, I talked about protected okay. crossings. And, you know, in some cases, some protected crossings really just stop traffic so pedestrians and bikes can cross. In other cases, they, they're a combination. They actually provide some traffic flow function as well. Um, there, there can be benefits of all of those um, within this broader category, and the definition works. Uh, I had one other question, and that's uh, routing truck traffic. Uh, back in the day, we had an issue with a quarry uh, on Shady Grove Road. Uh, we actually uh, improved the uh, the roadway Shady Grove going away from the quarry to 270. Uh, the issue came, should we do the other side? I said, no, the trucks are coming back empty. But again, uh, is there any consideration that truck traffic uh, sign says, uh, no right turn at route to the old Route 28, but uh, is there any consideration, uh, as, and particularly in the Shady Grove area, as we develop that, new plans for development, uh, is any review of truck traffic routing in any of these considerations? That's not in any of the code updates here. I think we, we haven't changed the authority we have to respond to that. That's already out there today. Um, I think the only thing that might relate is lane widths. Um, obviously, we, tr we try to shrink down travel lane widths as narrow as possible, pretty much across the board. But there is kind of an asterisk that says if you have a justified reason. Maybe it's a major bus route and buses need a wider width. Or if you've got those trucks carrying um, dump trucks out of a quarry, that might be a reason where you might allow uh, wider lane widths. But it's really starting, starting narrow, and you have to try to justify why you would go bigger than that. Okay, all right, but I, that routing to, as you have more urbanized areas developing, whether that's something that's considered uh, the truck routing through that. You talked about industrial areas before evolving industrial areas, so that was one consideration at some point to take a look at. Thank you. Thank you. All right, okay. wrapping up, um, next steps in conclusion. Um, the next steps, for, once we get past the county um, council review process and, and the approval of the changes to these three documents, we would be coming back and revising this document. Um, and there, uh, there are several different items mentioned on, shown on this slide um, that we've, we've mentioned. Some of these we've mentioned before. Some of these we brought up today. Um, that, you know, it's a running list, as Andrew said, that we would have to go back and make some changes to the guide to conform, and then we would come back to you folks for approval of the revised document. Um, okay. Uh, very good. Unless there's some objection to that, we will uh, see you soon with the final revisions. And I think we're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. I think we need your motions to approve comments.
Uh, yeah, okay. Can we get a motion to transmit these uh, comments? So, so moved. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Chair, you aye. Opposed? Those are approved. Thank you very much. Thank you.